This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 282 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to bring you a very powerful interview with Travis Howes. Now, Travis was a member of Charleston Fire Department. He responded to the Super Sofa Fire, where they lost nine of their firefighters, one of whom was his best friend. And Travis and his team were initially searched, which sadly became recovery, having to pull the bodies of their nine fallen firefighters out of that fire. Travis has had an incredible journey through police, military, fire, and then comedy. Comedy was one thing he turned to to have an outlet. So you will hear this conversation kind of split into two. Um, it flows as one long episode, but he came to Florida. We did a face-to-face while he was here in, in town, but we hadn't concluded the story. So then we carried on recording over Skype to give the whole story. Just a little warning, this gets uh, a little explicit as far as the description of some of the things he saw in Charleston and also some of the uh, dark humor and jokes that we talk about as well. So you might not want to play this on Bluetooth with the kids in the car. Um, but that being said, as I always say, before we get to the interview, please take a moment and go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show so you know when the new episodes drop. Leave feedback. I love reading the feedback that you leave. And then most importantly, leave a rating. Five-star ratings truly do make us more visible to people looking for a podcast like this. And then take your social media, word of mouth, email, whatever it is, and share these episodes. So with that being said, I introduce to you an extremely powerful interview with Travis Howes. Enjoy.
Travis, I want to start by saying welcome to Casa de Gearing. It's a great place, man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. Thank you for driving down. Yes, sir. Um, so we'll just jump straight in. I, I love to start at the very beginning. I know you touched on um, your childhood, but let's go even further back to your grandfather and his incredible early story and then how that kind of took a turn. So my grandfather, uh, his name was, his name was DC and that stood for Donald Calvin, but everybody knew him as DC and he was a big, tough Florida guy. He, he grew up in Florida and, uh, South Georgia. Um, but unfortunately when he was five, his mother died and he was left to be raised by his father who was then sent to prison before he turned six. So when his father went to prison, his father was killed in prison. And so his dad never came home and it left his brothers to raise him down here in Florida in a logging community. So by the time DC was in the third grade, he, um, he dropped out of school and started working with his brothers logging. And, um, when he was 17, he, he joined the army and then went to fight overseas in world war two. And, uh, he was over there for four years doing, uh, island hopping campaigns. And, uh, so, by the time he returned home, he, I guess he had seen more action than, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys. And he was affected, um, traumatically in ways that, you know, uh, a lot of people couldn't imagine. And how he dealt with that was through abusing alcohol. And he became very violent. My understanding is that he would, um, he was physically violent towards everybody in the family to include his, his uh, daughters, his sons, my dad and my uncle and uh, my grandmother. And he would make my father um, prove that he was a tough guy. And when new kids would move into the neighborhood, my my grandfather would make my dad go fight him. And not only fight him, he'd have to he'd have to beat him. And if he didn't if he didn't beat him, then my grandfather would beat my dad. Um, he would uh, when my dad's cousins would come over uh, for vacation or whatnot or, or from out of town. My, my grandfather would make them do foot races and do pull-ups and everything. If my dad didn't beat everybody, my dad got a beaten. That's just how it was. Um, now DC loved his family, loved his kids. And, you know, I'm the biggest advocate for my grandfather because I get my grandfather and my whole life growing up. He, he, he ended up dying when I was, um, right after I got out of the Marine Corps. So I, I, I knew him but I didn't have this fruitful relationship with him because he did live, you know, a good distance away and I saw him occasionally. But anyway, so my grandfather, I feel like I am the spitting image of my grandfather and because of the things I went through and because of the behaviors that I had later in life, not, I haven't been physically abusive to my family, but I certainly understand him because my whole time growing up, everybody talked negatively about DC. He was a mean man. He was a bad man. Um, I don't think he was mean and I don't think he was bad. I think he was dealt a very shitty fucking hand in life and he didn't know how to deal with it till he found, so he found alcohol and that generation, they certainly weren't walking around saying, Hey, I need a therapist. Who, who can I talk to about these problems I'm having? I mean, this is a man that went to the Philippines where, you know, the Japanese soldiers were, were, were staking, um, women and children cutting their heads off and putting babies heads on stakes. How do you come home and deal with that shit? You know, you don't, you come home and you drink and you beat your fucking kids when, especially when they get loud. Um, dad said that when they were little, <clears throat> I'm sorry if I'm hoarse. Um, by the way, it's um, been very active on stages recently. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a good reason. Yeah. Um, 
But dad said that they had to walk on eggshells all the time. And if you made the, any, any kind of noise that was a little bit loud, I mean, he would flip out and guess what? I'm the exact same way, or I have been the exact same way. I should say, remember there's times where my wife and my kids would tiptoe around our house religiously. And I knew what they were doing because I, and I knew that it was because I was fucked up and my wife, thank God. I mean, she would try to control them as much as possible, but she told me sometimes she's like, you know, I feel like my kids don't even have a real childhood because they can't even laugh and play and have fun without setting you off sometimes. And it's because I was sick, man. So that's the gist of my grandfather and how it kind of plays into me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's something we see over and over again. You look back and, and I know, uh, Sebastian Jungo was on the show and he talked about that generation at least had they were welcomed home. They were, they were truly heroes. Now, some of them, though, if they went to a small town, it, it may have been momentary, you know, but right. then you have the Vietnam generation where they were, you know, a lot of them were spat on and called baby killers and all that stuff. Yeah. So to go, like you said, overseas and do these things and see these things and then come back. And then the next thing, fast forward five years, oh, that's that bum that lives under the, no, no, no. Yeah. That's a, that's a kid who, you know, like you said, may have lost his dad who went to prison, then was murdered, and then he went overseas and did this for this country and came back. And, you know, some people cope well, some people don't. And we just let them fall through the cracks. And then they become labeled as a bum or a crackhead. Shell or a shock whore. was the big name back then, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. And it's how do you go overseas and, and go on a four year killing spree and then come back and now you're supposed to be a civilized human being? I'm a firm believer. We're all, we're all fucking animals. You know, but we have fortunately, for the most part of society, we have not been exposed to what a very small percentage has been exposed to. So that animal instinct in us, we're able to keep it suppressed. Whereas those that have to bring that animal instinct out at some point in their life and for a long period of time, um, they're looked down upon when they can't get it back under control, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. And people can, but it's going to take work. If you're, you know, say a police officer yeah. for 30 years and you see your social worker. I know one of my uh, girlfriends when I was younger, her mother was a social worker. She was a lady who would, you know, go to the house and find there was a baby in the freezer. You know, 30 years of seeing that, we need to take care of those people. You know, we, we need to make sure that they are able to transition back into the civilian world or, yeah. you know, whatever they're trying to go through. But if we just leave them out on their own on the island, of course, you know, there's a, a very large chance that shit, they're going to turn to some unhealthy coping mechanism. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because um, when you talk about these 30 year careers in law enforcement or your 30 year careers in, in the fire service, whatnot, I am very pro military and I'm not taking anything away from the military when I say this, but when military, when they go overseas to fight, like my grandfather, granted he had, he had to go fight for four years. Now that wasn't four years, day in, day out. They had days off here and there, right? But granted, they weren't beautiful days off with Liberty and all this. I mean, they were sitting on some fucked up Island eating out of cans. What I'm getting at is he at least returned home right to where he was out of that environment. He was no longer on an Island with baby's heads on stakes, right? With, with, uh, incoming mortar rounds firing over his head. The, the unfortunate thing with the police and the fire department is or in the EMS and the hospital workers, they live in these environments, their entire life. They're affected in these environments and they don't get to escape these environments. So I, I live in Charleston and I have wanted to get out of Charleston for 11 fucking years now, 11. And I say 
fucking because I'm passionate about leaving that place. I love that town, but it is, it has done so much to me, um, mentally from the calls, the things that I've seen, I can't escape it. So in a sense, it makes me sick. And what I'm getting at is when the military leaves these combat zones or whatever, they can come home and hopefully they can find help. And I think it's, it's difficult for police and fire to really get the help they need because not only are they, they have to work in the environment that makes them sick. They're constantly in it. So like you get in, into a shooting as a cop or you go to these fires where you pull dead babies out of these fires and now you have to go back to the firehouse, have dinner that night and do it all again tomorrow. And it never, it never stops. You never get to leave it. And then you have to go home to your family, get in bed, hey, get get dressed the next day, and heaven forbid what tragedy awaits on you that day, you know? Or even, I've had this myself, you, you're on your day off, you know? And this is not obviously a pity party. This is just right, acknowledging no. what, what, what it's actually like. But yeah, you go on your day off and you drive down that road. And you're like, oh, that was with that dead prostitute in that dumpster. Oh, I remember the guy that was shot there and the 15-year-old that died there. And, yeah, yeah and, it's, and it's sad, but, but the, uh, several of the members of the military I had on here have said the same thing. We do and see horrible things, but we can leave it in Iraq, it. Afghanistan. That's right. You know, whereas, yeah, you know, the police, military, whoever, I mean, excuse me, the, the first responder communities, um, the dispatchers, they have to go sit at that same computer again. A day in, day know? out. So, so, yeah, there is, a, and again, it's not, a sympathy thing it's just acknowledging like again these people are gonna need you know as many resources as we can give them for them to thrive and and our as you know our community it's almost the opposite like you know we work longer work weeks than most people that work in a bank and yet we're up all night working on dead kids like how is that even <laughs> you know computing properly well it's also like you say it's not a pity party but it's also perspective right so and i think i've actually said that to people before and you can see the like the light bulb go off they're like holy shit that makes a lot of sense these people work in these environments they get fucked up in these environments they have to live in these environments they have to go grocery shopping in these environments they have to take their children in these environments you know at least you don't have to drag your family i'm, I'm fortunate that these um i don't have to drag my family back to these uh, <clears throat> let me back up like with the military they're fortunate i should say to where they don't have to drag their families back to these war zones in afghanistan and shit like that you know um so like again my hat's off to them not taking anything away but and i'm glad that obviously for what they do for us shit i was in the marine corps but i didn't do anything what these guys like or what they're doing today so there's no comparison what these cats are going through today um so and thank God they do what they do to keep that shit over there. You know what I mean? Yeah. To keep it from, you know, being here. But yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go back to, to your childhood. So, so we talked about your granddad and obviously the sadly where, where he fell through the craps, craps, cracks. <laughs> the cracks. Um, so, you know, your dad obviously was raised under that very, very harsh regime, if you like. Yeah. So, um, put it. tell me about your, your uh, early life. So you said at three you had an issue. At three you want to start? Old. Yeah. So we'll yeah, start, start super early. All right. So I started fighting for my life um, at three months old, and uh, I was I was born healthy and uh, everything was was normal. And then um, at three months into my life, I guess I started crying uncontrollably, and my parents they couldn't figure out what was going on with me. So I got I got a uh, a fever, and it was around a hundred and four, and it was it looked like it wasn't slowing down. And my mother at the time was a nurse or um, she worked at a doctor's office and uh, she took me to her doctor and she was afraid that I might have um, 
uh, meningitis. And so she convinced the doctor that she worked with to, um, to run some tests and they did. And, and it turns out I had bacterial meningitis, which is the worst of the two, my understanding. And, um, I was hospitalized, um, for six weeks in ICU in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And my understanding is that from talking to my mom that I was, uh, I was blind and they didn't know if I would see again. And the doctor also told her, we don't even know if he's going to be normal. We don't, they, they had very grim hopes and their message to her was if he survives, he's either going to be blind or damn well retarded, you know, one of the two. And, um, so they, I, I pulled through enough to where at some point they could release me and send me home, but I was still, still blind. And, uh, I guess I wasn't mentally handicapped, if you will, at the time. But, uh, so I guess two days after my mom got home, she said I was, for the first two days, I was just sitting in my crib laying there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't really look around, uh, because I couldn't see. I wouldn't move normal things that a normal, at that time I was six months old, things that a six month old would be doing, you know, curious, uh, six month old. I wouldn't do any of those things. And after about two days, she said, um, she heard me cooing. I was making a noise finally. And she walked back there and I was sitting up, I was sitting upright and I was looking around and I was smiling. It was just like something happened and I was good to go. Um, oh, she did say that my eyes were extremely crossed and then, but when she walked in, they were straight. So she got excited, took me to the doctor and, um, he, he, she walked in with me and held me up and she said, his name was Dr. Wood. And she's like, Dr. Wood, Dr. Wood, look at Travis. And, uh, she says he, he, he's, he's fine. And the doctor could not believe it. And he's, he just kept saying that it was a miracle. So I think they were convinced that I was destined to not be like I am today. So that's how that started out. And then, um, from there, uh, I can, I was having dinner with my parents not too long ago. We were talking about your earliest childhood memories. And I told them I could remember back to when I was three years old. And my mom looked at me and she says, there's no way you can remember when you were three. And I said, I guarantee you I can. And she said, how? And I said, because I had a traumatic event at three years old. And this is a funny traumatic event, but it's still traumatic nonetheless. So when I was three months old, we were, uh, or three years old, we were living in a trailer park and we were just little white trash kids running around in diapers and and riding, uh, my cousin and, uh, my sister were on a, a golf cart. And so that if I was three, that would have made them six. So they're just driving up and down the, the little trailer park and in a golf cart. I remember very vividly jumping out from the bushes in front of this golf cart, throwing my hands up, hoping that they would stop to let me ride. Cause they weren't letting me ride. My cousin Butch was driving. My sister, Jessica was riding and they drove right over the top of me. I mean, just flattened me out. And you know how low to the ground these old golf carts are. Well, we lived right by a, a big, a big roadway, but the road that I just got ran over on was a little dirt road. So my sister or either Butch, one of them ran into the house where all the adults were. They were, there was a get together and they yelled, Travis just got ran over. Well, the adults were freaking out. So they ran out to the highway thinking that's where I was. And so while they were out there confused, my little white trash ass is laying up underneath this golf cart, just laying there pinned. And before I knew it, all the men came over and they, they, they lifted the golf cart. But what I can remember about this, I was wearing little underoos, um, underpants. And I remember the lady there. I don't know who she was, but I remember a lady laying next to me, calming me, keeping me calm and saying, always, I remember her saying, oh, his little underoos are all cut up. And that's what I remember from that. That's my earliest childhood memory. And the reason I remember that is because it was trauma. 
and it was burned into my brain forever. And when my mom, when I told her that story, we never covered it in detail. You know, over the years, they talked about me getting run over, but it was when I told her the detail in that, her jaw was on the floor. And I told her, I said, that is what post-traumatic stress is. That's a taste of it. And I had a lifetime of that shit coming, headed right for me. Um, as the years go by, so growing up under my father, um, like we, we talked about, he was, he, he was a tough man cause he was raised tough. Now he wasn't physically abusive towards us. And if he had to beat your ass, he'd beat your ass. I promise you that. But he didn't just walk in the house. He didn't have a drinking problem. He didn't slap us around and stuff like, like his father did, but he was very, very stern and extremely hard. And if I messed up things and, um, I didn't give something my all, I, he got in my ass for it. So growing up, I loved play sports and I was a little guy and I was telling you this story earlier. I had to, I was so small that my dad had to toughen me up. All the other kids were much bigger and on the football field. I would get ran over. And, uh, so one day my dad being the call or not the college, but the high school athlete, he was, he was a, a defensive end that won a head hunting award for pretty much just being vicious. I mean, they gave awards for this. And, and the reason I'm saying this is to kind of just let listeners know the culture that I come from is being raised as a tough guy by tough men. So here he is a defensive end and he's watching his son just get pummeled day in and day out on the football field. So he takes me home and he packs his duffel bag full of everything. I, I swear to this day, I think he had bowling balls in there. I think he had irons in there. <laughs> Piano. <laughs> Anything he could fit in that son of a bitch was in there. And he would make me dress in my pads at seven years old and run at him full speed. Now, I'm a 230-pound guy right now. And my dad back then was every bit of my size. Here I am, seven years old, running at a 230-pound man. And he would come at me, too. He wouldn't run at me, but he would move hastily towards me and he would take that bag. And when I would hit that bag, he would stretch me the fuck out every single time that, that kind of hit where it makes your jaw clench and hit, bite your own teeth kind of thing. And then he would look at me and say, get up, do it again. And we would do this for hours. It seemed like, and then he would pummel me with this bag sometimes when I was on the ground and what he was doing, he was instilling in me that no matter how hard you get hit, I know this sounds cliche. You can get up and do it again. And just keep getting up. Just keep getting up. And I didn't realize how important that would be later in life. Because later in life, I was getting knocked the fuck down. And I always thought about this back in the day. I'm like, I can get up. I just keep getting up. So when we go back to these games, and boys, they they would seek me out. They'd seek out the little guy, and they'd hit him. But they'd never take me out. And I'd get back up. And then I found little ways to to hit him lower, to get underneath him and, and like clip him and shit like that. So I had to play a little bit dirty. Um, that's just kind of a, a scenario on how I was raised and, and it, the same rings true when I played baseball. Um, we had a, we had a baseball game one time and these two, they were called the new rider twins. These, they were court. His name was court and Corey. They were brothers and I was on third base and court came up and hit a ball as ground ball came screaming at me. And I guess right, right as the ball got to me, I pulled up and it went between my legs. You know, I got scared. Didn't want to get hit. And uh, the, the ball went into um, left field. Is that left field? Yeah, left field. I got to think back here. <laughs> so um, so the ball goes out into the outfield, and uh, I turn around, and I just see my dad's face. He's just scowling at me. And I, I, I knew I'd fucked up. And I, I was like, man, I'm going to pay for this somehow. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this, but I'm going to. Well, the, Corey comes up to bat next, the other brother, in the same exact 
play. I mean, to a T he hits it goes right between my legs. I got scared. I pulled up. Now I was too scared to even turn around when they relayed the ball back to me. I, I turned, I caught it, I turned and threw it back to home. And now instead of my dad in the bleachers, he's by the dugout holding the fence, you know, like when you're holding that chain link fence and you're just leaning in, he's like peering through that little diamond of a, like of, of, of the movie. yes, dude. <laughs> and I just, and he's just staring a hole through me, man. I couldn't have been eight or nine years old. And I just knew I was like, something bad is going to happen after this game. So after we get done with the game, we get in the truck. My dad didn't say a word to me, nothing. We got in the truck and we lived about 10 minutes away. We drive the entire way home. He didn't say shit. We get home. I get out of the truck. He doesn't turn the truck off. And uh, I turn back around and look at him. He goes, go inside and get your, um, your bucket of balls and your other bat. Keep your glove right here. And so I had this huge bucket of balls that we would practice with. So I was like, oh, shit, man. So I went and I got this bucket of balls and I brought everything back to the truck. And we started driving again and he wasn't talking to me. But we started heading right back into the direction of the damn baseball field. And we get there. Everybody's gone now. The game was over. And we walk out. There's about an hour left of darkness. So in my mind, I thought, all right, whatever's about to happen, it's going to get dark. We don't have long. This son of a bitch walks over to the power pole. There was a light switch, an old school, like big lever. And he just flipped it up. And he goes, we're going to be here a while. And now we got lights on the field and we were there for hours, dude. And this dude, so what he did, he made me stand about 15 feet away. Now, normally between the the home plate and third base in little league, what, 60 feet, something like that. So he's standing 15 feet away from here. Here's a 200 plus pound man, big dude. And he is literally every ground ball. He goes, we're going to stay here until you catch every ball that I hit to you, every single one. And that's what we did. He would hit him as hard as he could on the ground to show me you're going to get hit. You're going to get hit in the face. It's going to hurt. If it busts your teeth out, guess what? You're not dead. Pick the fucking ball up and play it. And that's what we did, man. Balls would get by me and we'd start over. He'd hit three, four, five, go get them. And then I'd have to run out to the field, go grab them, give them back to him. And then we'd start over until I caught that whole bucket. And I was, I looked like a fucking leopard when we left there, man. <laughs> so this is the dude that raised me, man. And he's, um, he's the best man in the world though to me. I mean, and he's my best friend still to this day. And I'm so proud of the way he did raise me because later on in life, he saved my life by the way that he was with me. And he loved me. Um, but he was just a tough man. Where do you want to go from there? Um, well, let's, let's move on then from there. So, um, you know, we talked about your, your athletics, what about the career side? When you were in high school, what was it you wanted to do when you graduated? Um, so as I was going through school, there was really no hope for me. I never, I was never on this path to become a rogue scholar, if you will. I don't care how much hope somebody would have wanted for me. There wasn't enough out there. Um, I think I had a very special place in this world and, um, there was nothing that school was going to teach me that, although I didn't, I didn't know it at the time. Um, in eighth grade, I was voted class clown. And that, that was a sign of some things to come right there. And I was so proud of that. I'd never been voted for, for anything. I'd never won anything like special. That was so special to me. And I remember in eighth grade being so proud of that. And my father was not proud of that. He didn't really knock it. But when I went to show it to him, he was like, okay, you're, you're, you're a fucking clown. That's great. That's, that was the attitude he had, right? So I get into high school and, uh, I had one goal in mind. I was like, I'm going to win 
the class clown of my high school when it's time for me to graduate. I got four years to work on this shit. <laughs> so <laughs> to be the funniest fucker in this that, place. <laughs> that's it, man. So that that's all I cared about was just being an, a fucking asshole at school. And um, but here's the thing: I come from such a disciplined home that I had to be very careful because I knew if that phone rang at home, I was going to get my ass beat. Because my father did not tolerate that shit. You do you do not go to school and act like an asshole. So. But I did. I went to school and act like an asshole and I got away with it and I had to find little clever ways to keep teachers from calling. Um, I, I'm going to tell you this story to kind of teachers hated me. Okay. They absolutely hated me. And it wasn't because I was disrespectful. I was just disruptive. All right. And, and I hate that about that now because I can't go back and change that because it actually embarrasses me to think about my teacher's looking at me back then thinking this kid's never going to grow up to be worth a shit, you know, because I think I turned out all right, but I can't, I can't turn back the hands of time, but I can hope to God my kids don't behave the way that I did. This is how much they dislike me. So I was in shop class. How many men or boys do you know fail shop? I didn't even do shop. I did home economics because I was so bad at shop earlier. Really? I didn't even do it. Yet, you know what's so. funny? I did home <laughs> economics and I passed. I did too. All the girls were there. Why would exactly. you not do home I, economics? I'll bake some. I'll bake some pies. Let's do it, <laughs> right? Oh, I was. Oh, I was up to something. Yeah, I love home ec. And here's the thing, but I failed shop. We probably would have been good friends back then because I, I'm. I, if I had, I taken it. I would have too. I'm sure. So, looking at the background I come from, I I flip houses. I can build build almost build houses with. I mean, you. They're not going to pass the code, but I can build it. <laughs> so um, I work on cars. I can do all these things, but I fail shop. Well, I grew up on a farm and I failed shop. I okay. So well, that makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I failed shop is because the teacher hated me. And this is how much he hated me. And I'm going to tell you why. Because he had a, he had a run in with my father and my father did, did not play. So one day I was going to um, throw a paper clip away in a trash can. And Mr. Harrison goes, Mr. Howes, I'll take that paper clip. And I said, no, sir, I got it. I was respectful. And I was, wasn't was trying to be an asshole, just trying to throw his paperclip away. And that man grabbed me by my neck, the front in my throat area. And he said, I said, I'll take it. And I looked at him and I said, you just fucked up. He said, excuse me? <laughs> I said, you just fucked up. And I grabbed my bag and I walked out of class. So here I am. Now I'm going to tell daddy, right? Big tough man. I am. I'm in 10th grade at the time. I go to the pay phones down the hall. I put my little quarter in. And I called my dad and my dad was working at a golf course. He was a superintendent and the mechanic from the shop answers. And he goes, um, I told him what was going on. I said, Mr. Glenn, this is, this happened at school and I need to tell my dad. And Mr. Glenn goes, uh, Travis, you sure you want to tell your father this? I said, yeah, I do put him on the phone. He goes, Travis, you know what he's going to do. I said, I know exactly what he's going to do. That's why I want to tell him to so put him <laughs> on the phone. And so Mr. Glenn was trying to keep my dad out of jail. Thank God it's not the way it is today. Let me tell you what this dude did. So my dad, when he got on the phone, um, I told him what happened. I didn't even finish what happened. All I said is the teacher grabbed me by the throat. He goes, wait right there and click. And he hung up. He worked 10 minutes away. He drove his old blue truck. And before I knew it, that blue truck pulled up in the front. And uh, my dad walked through the front door. And this is right in front of the office. All the office staff is in there. And uh, he goes, where's that motherfucker at? And I go, oh, bell's about to ring. He'll be here in a second. Oh, I couldn't wait. I knew it was about to happen. <laughs> but I hate being like that, man, because I put my dad in a horrible position, man. But I was just being so selfish thinking about me. Like, I got to get this get back. And I couldn't do it as a kid. 
Well, the bell rings. Mr. Harrison, <laughs> Mr. Harrison walks out and he was this, he's this portly guy, man. I hate it. I hate say, I hate even telling this story, but he walks out and I mean, it's in between classes. So all the kids are out. And I said, there he is, dad, right there. And my dad walks over to this son of a bitch, grabs him by his neck in front of everybody, puts him against the wall and tells, tells this man to his face. If you touch my fucking kid again, I will kill you. And then he puts him down and he walks back over to me and goes, go to the rest of your classes. And my dad left. Everybody in, was just stunned. And, and the whole, all the classes like, what the hell is this going on? All the kids. So I go to my next class. And so the next day, Mr. Harrison pulls me in. And he says, hey, Travis, um, I, got, I need to talk to you. And I sat down. And I was like, yes, sir. And he said, look, uh, we need to find a way to get along in here because I, 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 I don't want to be upsetting your father anymore. I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, no, that's not a good idea, Mr. Harrison. And now I'm being an <laughs> asshole, right? And uh, so I was like kind of rubbing it in his face. And then, but he got the last laugh. He failed me with a 65, man. I'll never forget that. You had to have a 70 to pass. And he failed me to 65. So he got the last laugh. But just kind of still reiterating the kind of man my dad was. And he wasn't a bully by any means. My dad was stick up for anybody. So let me put, I will say that first and foremost. He's a very good man, but he was just, he expected the best from people. You know, you don't put your hands on a fucking kid. Anyway, I can relate. I would to do that. the same thing today, mm-hmm. except I would be in jail today. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and and vice versa. Kid doesn't put his hands on a teacher. Exactly, either, you know? exactly. And yeah. I would, if my kids would ever do that, I'd beat their ass. Yeah. And then they, I'd, they'd have to come. I'd beat their ass all the way to the jail. I mean, this is the way it's going to be. Um, I'm too, as a dad now. I think I'm too old school for today's rules and expectations of parents. I think it's going to get me at some point. Yeah. But, well, we were talking before about um, facades, and I think that's what we've got going on too. Like this facade of political correctness and all this stuff, you know, that that's not even a real thing. Like people have lost yeah. lost control of just what normality is in that middle ground where, you know, it's so far away from where it should be that now it's totally detrimental to people. You know why? It's because, uh, I don't know, we're not here to talk about that, but I think it's because uh, hard times breed hard people and we don't know hard times anymore. And it's almost like we need some hard times to put, to, to hit the reset button, let people know, Hey, all this political correctness doesn't mean shit when, when, when it comes down to it. It's gratitude as well. That's like, right. You know, if, if you can't, wake up in america and their first thought be fuck thank god i'm born in america you know exactly i'm in this beautiful house and no one's trying to murder me and we have food in the fridge that's the that is the fundamental problem i think for a lot of people is that that there's not that there's not that thank you for what i have it's always what i don't have or or this competitive mentality like i want to be better than that guy i want to have all the money i want to have all the farms yeah a piece of the pie is not enough no i I want the 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 factory that makes them yeah you know so so to to get to to get back to kind of where i was going with that was uh i was i was well on my way to being the class clown you know and that was 10th grade now i got two more years man and there's the competition's fierce but but i was gonna get it man so this is what happened is uh my senior year in high school my dream came true, man. And I'm proof. I'm proof. If you work hard enough to be an asshole for a class clown, you can do it. You know, <laughs> that's what I'm listening. Yeah, that's, dreams. When, <laughs> that's when I realized, man, Hey, I knew it right then. I said, man, I can do anything I want. My only mission was to be a class clown and I did it. So 12th grade, man, class clown. Here I am. And I was so proud of it. And, uh, I knew, I knew that I was going into the Marines. I, I always knew that as a young kid. Um, there was no other option for me. I wanted to go into the Marines because in in my mind, and it was just one of those, 
I want, I felt like it was going to be the, the biggest one to challenge me. And honestly, I needed the Marines because I wanted to show my dad is I've always wanted to prove to him. I've always had something to prove to him. Although he's never asked me to prove myself. He was just tough on me. That was it. But I always, I, I always wanted him to be, yeah, my son's a man. He, you know what I mean? And, and we'll get to why that's so important later too. And why I was not as um, susceptible to asking for help later on. You know what I mean? Because I didn't want to feel like less of a man. So anyway, I, I win this accolade class clown. I go to my father again to show it off and I never forget the disappointment in his, in, in his eyes and in what, then what he said to me, I would never forget what he said to me. A dad, I won class clown. He goes, congratulations. You brought our, or he says, congratulations. Our family name is a fucking joke. That's what he said to me. And he goes, you couldn't win something like most likely to succeed or something like that. You go and win class clown. He goes, that's a fucking joke. Travis, what are you going to be a, a comedian? Well, 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 <laughs> my, 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 look at me now. It's like Joe Coy says when he, have you heard his bit about no. being a comedian? Uh-uh. I mean, I'm, I will totally butcher it, but basically uh, my wife's half Filipino. So, okay. um, you know, it's hilarious because he, when he's talking about his mother, it's just like my mother-in-law. Um, but she's like, oh, you want to be a comedian, Joseph? Do you see any clowns in our family? That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> so, yeah. It reminds me exactly of that. Well, that's, so that's exactly how it was. And then, I mean, it was like, man, I got, I just won this. And I was like, I almost want to be like, I won this for you. <laughs> so be proud of me. But he wasn't, he was pissed. So, um, so that's all right, man. So I graduated high school and then I went in, I went into the, into the Marines and, and the, um, the fuckery didn't stop there. I promise you that I got in there and I was, Still the same dude and now, but I was paying for it dearly every single day. And it was a boot camp. I went, I went to boot camp on Paris Island and I was dating a girl whose dad was stationed on Paris Island. He was a range, uh, he was a staff sergeant at, at a weapons training battalion and he hated me. Go figure. He hated me because I was just this silly ass kid that he couldn't, he didn't have any respect for. And, um, didn't help that before I went to boot camp, I told his wife to kiss my ass. Um, because she, she said something mean to me and I was like, shit, I'm a grown man now. I graduated high school. Kiss my ass. Right. Um, so I get to boot camp and I thought I was safe. I didn't think, uh, Mr. Mike would find me. And, and he did. He found me within like 20 minutes. Um, we're getting settled into our new platoon and everything. And I still have 13 weeks left and we were downstairs doing. So what, back then what we would do is when you get your issued boots, your leather boots, they make you strip all the leather off, right? The shine, they make you strip it off. And then you have to start learning how to reshine your boots and everything. So we're down there stripping our boots, the whole platoon and drill instructor, Sergeant Cunningham yells down. He goes, give me recruit house up here. I want to kill him. Said it just like that. And I was like, what the fuck did I do? I mean, we have like 90 guys in our platoon. Why am I being singled out? And so Sergeant Schaefer uh, walks over and he just gets in my face. He's like, you're a dead man. You're a dead man. He goes, get up there. And he was so happy. He didn't know what was going on either, but he was happy. I was about to go to my death. So I haul ass up to the top of the stairs or, or on the second deck. Excuse me. I run to the second deck. I run all the way to our drill instructor's uh, office. It's called a senior drill instructor's hooch. And the only way you can get permission to go in you can't even look in there. You have to bang on this brick wall three times. They have this, this hand painted on there and you have to stand next to it and bang on it three times. And the only way they'll give you permission to enter is if when they're satisfied on how hard you were hitting the wall. 
man, they made me hit this wall. It seemed like five minutes. I mean, my hand was throbbing. I'm like, why are they not letting me in? So finally, I keep requesting permission. Sir, recruit house, request permission to enter. Sir, louder. Sir, recruit house, request permission to enter, sir. Louder. So, and, and it's just over and over. I'm hitting this wall and requesting permission. So finally, finally they let me in. And as soon as I turn the corner, my girlfriend's dad is standing right there with all the drill instructors. And I just knew I was like, fuck, <laughs> I am so fucked. And I was, dude. So my senior drill instructor looks at me and goes, you know who this Marine is? I said, sir, yes, sir. And he goes, you're about to have a fun time here on Paris Island, son. And uh, I don't remember the conversation right after that, but all the drill instructors were just staring holes through me. And then Mr. Mike, who was a staff sergeant at the time, he asked asked me to walk outside with him. And so we we walk outside, and he just starts talking to me, actually kind of like a father figure and not as a Marine. And I was so scared. I remember saying, sir, request permission to speak freely, sir. And he said, go ahead. And I go, Mr. Mike, I just want to apologize for what I said to your wife. I'm so sorry. (laughs) I was so fucking scared, man. I was so scared. And then I let him see that. And that's where I fucked up. And now he knew it. And he goes, he smiled and he goes, all right. And he walked back in the office and he left. And then my drill instructors were like, that is your ass. So from there on out, the the next 13 weeks, any time I was on the radar now and there was no getting off. Anytime they could, they could thrash me, they would. They'd pull me to the side anywhere we were, and they would just smoke me. And I, it took me back to those days with my dad. Though. I was just going to say that. Get Prepared up. you for it, at least. Get up. Get up. And I kept getting up. Give, give me some more. Give me some more. And it made me stronger, and it started callousing my mind, started making me tough, man. And it's like my body's wearing out, but you know what? You're not doing shit to my mind. My mind is stronger than my body. I do all these push-ups all day, and if I lay here in a pool of sweat and I'm on the ground – Oh, well, I'll get back up. I know that this isn't forever. This isn't permanent. And that is important for later too. See, I'm setting the stage for a lot of shit for later for these big battles coming later. That's why I love talking about the early life first. Yeah. You know, it really does. And it's, and it may sound mundane. It may sound boring, I guess in, in some ways, um, like, all right, let's get to the juice. Let's get to the juice. But you have to lay that foundation right before we start putting up these walls. Absolutely. And this is every bit of this fucking foundation that I have. Um, so I'll go through boot camp, um, constantly in trouble, constantly. I would, I would do anything for a laugh. I didn't care anymore about getting punished. I just wanted people to laugh, man. We had this, we had this big black dude, man. He, I swear, and I hope this isn't too vulgar, but if it is, it is what it is. No, I mean, so this, this is guy the, had the, we got the explicit rating on here. So <laughs> this guy <laughs> had one of the biggest dicks I've ever seen in my life. And I say that with, passion in my voice admiration <laughs> yes <laughs> but it wasn't the biggest i will tell you about the biggest later when i was a fireman it, looking it forward to it big, oh, well, me too try, <laughs> trust me i want to fast forward that shit is funny that's one thing about firemen anyway let me let me i didn't go together so anyway this guy's name was thompson and uh, he stood across from me and every morning we would get out of our beds he had a boner and it was so huge and the drill instructors just never said anything about it and it was like when are they going to see this thing and say something? Why do they keep avoiding it? So I would do all these little things like acting like, like I would drop my jaw and make my eyes real big and stare at it. And when the drill instructors walked by, I'd like get the other recruits attention and try to get them to look at it. And people would start laughing, snickering and all this. So other guys would get in trouble and it was just, it, just stupid stuff like that. Just childish stuff. But, um, 
I mean, there's all kinds of little things I would do just to get, just to get laughs. And so this is who I am. This is never going away and it was only going to get worse. <laughs> so, um, when I finally graduated boot camp, November, November the 8th, 1996, um, staff sergeant, Mike Davis, he was there. He actually came and he was not hating me anymore. He was proud of me. welcoming me to the Marine Corps family. My family was there. I have pictures of all my drill instructors in my face at graduation right before we were to graduate. They were still singling me out on the day we were to graduate. I mean, five minutes before we were about to graduate, the rest of the platoon is right there. But who are they surrounding? Me. I have pictures of this. I mean, they are just, they didn't let up. I remember them saying, there's no way those guys can do this stuff today. But the shit that they were saying to me, my sister was there and they were like, man, that's your sister. And I was like, sir, yes, sir. And they're like, you think she'll fuck us? I mean, they were saying the craziest stuff, man. And they're trying to get me to laugh. And they're just trying to get a reaction from me. And they're singling me out. I think it, I think deep down they really did like me, though, because I never stopped. And they smoked me, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't get me. You know what I mean? So um, after boot camp, I had to go. I was always wanted to be in the infantry. Um, that's the only that's the only part of the Marine Corps that really was mattered to me is because when I thought of Marines, I thought about the dudes with guns, you know, and there's, there's a lot of cool jobs in, in, in the, in the Marine Corps, but that's the only one I wanted to do. Um, let alone, I know people are probably listening saying, fuck, that's the only one we were qualified to do. <laughs> Actually scored pretty decent on my ASVAB. Um, it was shockingly, um, scored shockingly, um, higher than I expected. So, um, yeah, so I go to infantry, and I go to infantry training battalion, and that was in a Camp Geiger, North Carolina. Same thing there, man. I get there, and I'm the I'm the brunt of all the jokes, and just having a good time. And I knew how to be serious too, but I was <clears throat> always larger than life, and having fun, and nothing else really mattered other than hey, enjoying this life that we have. And when we need to be serious, let's go be serious. But when we don't need that, why do we need to be so serious? Exactly. Well, that part of me died later in life. I got to a point where that Travis no longer existed and I can trace it back. It's so crazy. And that's who I'm trying to get back to now. Um, after, I don't have any crazy stories about um, infantry training battalion, but I'm going to tell you when I we were assigned to our units, I was assigned to Victor 36, 3rd Battalion, 6 Marines off of Camp Lejeune after, after I graduated infantry training school. And I don't remember how many of us there were. There were maybe 50 of us that went to three, six and we pulled up in these five ton trucks. And I remember it would be, it was like prison. Cause when we pulled up all the Marines, they were called fleet Marines. They're already in the, in the fleet. Like they're there, they're trained, they're ready to go. And we are what we call boots. We're brand new. So you're called a boot and nobody likes a boot. Cause you don't know shit about anything. We start pulling up on these five tons and they're whistling at us. They're yelling all these obscenities. And it was like prison, man. When you fish. <laughs> bro, yes, man. I'm telling you. And so me, I was about 158 pounds soaking wet. And these guys, all they had been doing for years is lifting weights, shooting steroids, eating, drinking, and fucking. I mean, these were, this was the alpha male Super Bowl. And that's important that I say this because I'm writing this book. Right. And you and I've talked about this book. It's called create your own light, which pretty much is talking about in your darkest times. Nobody's coming for you. You got to do it yourself. Make some light out of something, but fucking don't give up. Right. It's important to me 
to talk about these backgrounds because of how it shaped me and how it defined me, how it wired my mindset, right? So here I am, I'm surrounded by these, these alpha males, hundreds and hundreds of them. I mean, my company were 200, 200 dudes and every, it's every single one of them. I mean, when, when I got there, it was intimidating. I remember seeing dudes, not that day. I mean, there was, maybe it was that day too, but one of their things was they'd like to take new guys and put them between mattresses and just shove them off the fucking balconies. <laughs> would fall to the <laughs> ground. Yeah, man. It was like, oh, well, just get your ass up. They would do all kinds of things like that, man. Um, and then there were, there were always fights. Always. And it was ridiculous because here we are. We're all Marines. And we just wanted to fight each other all the time. And it was it, looking back is so dumb. But that's that mentality. That's that animal mentality that we have. So we had another company across from us called Kilo Company. And then you had Weapons Company and Lima Company, right? And we would always fight each other. Well, if you weren't in our company, India Company, you needed your ass beat. Like you couldn't even walk through our barracks on our side. You would get fucked up. And if you didn't do the fucking up, you got fucked up. I mean, that's how it was. I and mean, this was during pre 9-11. Yes, pre 9-11. Yeah. Yeah, this so peace time. So you yeah. had a bunch of yes. uh, Marines that were trained with no one to really kind of yeah, but you even, know. I mean, and even if there were a war going on, it's still like that. Mm-hmm. I still, I would still, when I was doing comedy overseas for the troops and stuff, and uh, I, I did some Marine bases, I saw that same mentality with these dudes. They're fucked. It's, it doesn't go away. That's the culture. The tribalism. It, it really is. Mm-hmm. It may be toned down a little bit and it's more PC friendly now. Back then it wasn't. Um, we would go on ship, um, to do these deployments. So we, I was deployed overseas, um, twice to the Mediterranean, Southwest Asia, and down into the Caribbean. But when we'd go on ships, we're stuck in these boats, right? For, for days at a time, sometimes and two weeks, it takes two weeks just to get across the Atlantic. Cause you have to go in a zigzag formation. Cause if you go straight across, it's considered an act of war. So they, oh, really? yeah, that's what we were told. Um, but I know it took two weeks and I don't know if that's the real reason, but that's what I was, that's what we were always told, but it would, it took two weeks to get across the Atlantic and you be on ship in a room with 400 Marines for two weeks. Back then we had no cell phones. We had no internet. We had a couple of fuck books, right? We call it still porn. That's where you got your action from. And if you move the pages really fast, you know, you can make the girls look like they were alive. So, um, but what, what do you think would happen, man? Tensions rise, people boil over and people just start fighting over dumb stuff. And it's accepted. It's, you just kind of step out of the way and like, all right, who's got who today. And that's how it is. But it was the time of my life, man. We went to all these different countries. We would get off the boat, and then uh, if we went on, if we went on Libo, we would we would go out and get drunk and just have a blast and get to see the world. And I wish I could do it again because I wouldn't be as intoxicated, and I would actually remember a lot more stuff. And I'd take time to learn cultures and do all that. But as a young man, you know, you you can't tell a young guy anything. No, um, no, especially not straight out of school. I want to get to the juice here in a second, man. Um, I did skip something earlier. It's, a, it's one of the biggest parts. Like I said, there's no rush with this one. This goes as long as it takes. So so what I want to do is I want to tell you about the uh, – I, I skipped over two big tragic moments in my childhood. Right. And I don't I don't know if, if you can put it back in there. You're just going to put no, it where just it, let it flow. Put it where it yeah. falls. All right. I like that. Unedited. Let's get back to um, early childhood trauma. So at 
I want to say I was 12. And my mom picks me up at school one day and I was playing little league baseball. And one, one of my best friends, I, I used to go camping with him and his, fa- his family. His dad was a coach. Sorry. Um, his dad was a coach. His mom worked at the school. I spent, spent the night at their house. He spent the night at my house. I mean, it was just one of those friendships you have. His dad was an amazing coach and he always won and everybody wanted to be on his team. Sometimes in little league, it didn't work out to where I was on his team because, you know, they couldn't keep stacking the teams. So there would be years where I wasn't on the team and then you were just mad. You're like, shit, man, I want to be on his team and I'm leaving the name out of it because I'm also leaving the name out of the uh, book just for respect because I'm not trying to tell their story, but I'm just want to tell my side of kind of how this impacted me. Well, one day my mom picks me up at school and um, sits me down in the car and she says, Travis, I need to, I need to tell you something. And I was like, what's wrong? And I could tell something's wrong. Come to find out my coach, um, he shot my friend, his son. He took his pitch in hand and, and shot it point blank through his wrist and then went and shot his, um, his wife in the face and then shot his, her mom, his mother-in-law, shot her in the face. And then he turned the gun on himself and blew his brains out. Yeah. How do you, how do you process that? Right. Um, so that happened and his life was never obviously the same. His mom lived, his, his grandma lived and he lived. Really? Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. Right. But the only one to die was the coach. Um, I can't speak about his mental state to this day. Cause our friendship after that, honestly, um, it, it dwindled naturally because he, he went through some things at a very young age that I couldn't imagine being able to have to process all this stuff. Um, shortly after that incident, I had another friend named Eric. I was in school with him. He lived down the street from my uncle. Um, he was at his cousin's house, which is down the street from my parents' house. One day they were playing with a gun and, uh, Eric got shot in the chest with a rifle and, uh, killed him instantly. And his cousin in a panic state went and threw the rifle in a pond. And that pond is on the side of the road where my parents live. And every single time I drive to their house now, I'm, I'm 41 years old now. This happened when I was what? 10, 12 years old, somewhere in there. I still think about that. Um, so a big part of my firefighting career is, um, started very early. And I talk about this in my book as well. My middle school was right. I mean, maybe 300, 400 yards from the firehouse. And I would actually sneak out in between classes and run over to the vending machine just so I could see the fireman. And they were always, they were always talking shit. They were always laughing. They were having fun. And I got to know them very personally. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be a fireman at a very young age. And, um, so what I started doing is hanging around the fire, fire station after school. Well, they had this little thing back then called, you could be like a junior, a junior woodchuck. And you could be, I think 14 or 15, I think it was 14. You could just hang around the firehouse and just like clean up and stuff. And they loved it because these guys wouldn't have to wash trucks because dudes like me would do it. Right? <laughs> and when I was 15, one day a, an emergency call came out and this guy named Ronnie Bergen, he was a fireman. He looks at me and goes, Hey kid, you want to go? And I can remember 
this like it was yesterday. It was July 9th, 1993. It was a Friday. Uh, it was during the summer. I was obviously out of school. It was early in the morning. And this is my first emergency call ever getting to go to at 15 years old. Back then, obviously, it's not like it is now. Hey, get on truck. Let's go. Nobody cared. July 9th, 1993, Friday, 10 in the morning. You know why I can remember that so so vividly? It's because that first emergency call that I got to go on was also my first firefighter fatality at 15 years old. Yeah. Um, there was a wreck on the Broad River Bridge, which connects Bluffton, South Carolina to Beaufort, South Carolina. Fire department on the Beaufort side was working a wreck and they needed a, they needed a tanker. We had a tanker, a 3000 gallon tanker, and they needed that up there on this bridge. We didn't, we knew it was a bad MVA. We didn't know the details. Um, so when we get there, we find out, um, and I'm standing right there next to the car, this, um, loaded concrete truck came over, you know, where how they have a hump and a bridge for it like raises a bridge. So there's a channel underneath for small boats. Yeah. So there was a hump in this bridge and just on the other side, traffic was backed up because there was a fender bender. Well, this big concrete truck comes barreling over this hump, didn't have enough stopping power once it cleared the hump and it drove right on top of the last car in the line. Um, and inside that car was a, uh, was a Hilton head firefighter. He had just left, he had just left work, just left his shift. He was 25 years old. His name was Sammy and, um, he was a Marine Corps veteran. Go figure. Right. So I talk about this in this book, how standing there seeing Sammy that morning, uh, on that bridge at 15 years old. I mean, I see the, the emotions coming over all these firemen when they realize who this was. I mean, I didn't even know him and I could, could feel this thing because he's, he's a fireman and you can just see it in their faces. It was, and it was eerily quiet. I remember it being the most somber, quiet, fatal wreck I've ever been to. And I've been to many over the years and there was something just peaceful about this one. And we're on the bridge and there's this nice breeze blowing and I'm handing these guys cribbing because they, they, they needed, they needed help. They're, they're having to use these, the high pressure bags to kind of lift the truck and they got a tow truck hooked to Sammy's car to pull it free. And, um, I'm, so I'm handing them cribbing and once they, uh, once they get the, the car free, everybody's just kind of standing there looking at the mangled mess inside. And a decision had to be made because you know what the most important thing is in the day. Got to keep traffic moving regardless of <laughs> fucking fireman dead in his car. Yeah. So we're on that bridge for a while and somebody made the decision to flatbed Sammy's um, car to the nearest firehouse to cut him out because to cut him out there, it would have just taken too long. That, that car was so demolished. Um, so they draped his car. They put it on a flatbed and they draped his car and we all stood there and watched as that wrecker truck pulled off towards the Beaufort side with his now dead body inside of this coffin, this metal crushed coffin. And that was my first, that was my first introduction to firefighter fatalities. And I remember the entire ride back to the firehouse. Ronnie didn't say a word to me. I was all juiced up going to this call. And I remember just being fucking sad on the way back. We didn't talk that same exact thing after the sofa superstore that killed my nine buddies. When we rode the rig back that after that fire, after being there all night, it was the same thing. Nobody talked. It's just, you're trying to process it. And, um, I think that's important to share those two stories 
into my early childhood events just to kind of, cause we were talking earlier, like a lot of the problems we as first responders have is we have traumatic events in our childhood sometimes that end up leading us down these other roads in life. And I certainly know that those led to a lot of the stuff that I went through in life too. Mm-hmm. When you said something interesting too, like I think I've no- noticed that from the, the good departments I've worked with, you know, the, the true firefighters that work alongside and then the people that just have done it for the badge is the ones that get it. It doesn't matter if you're a firefighter in the same department or in India. Yeah. If you die, you're a firefighter. Yeah. Same as a Marine or, you know, whatever it is. And I've had that before where people in the same department when we've lost someone have said, well, I didn't know him very well. And you talk about yeah. wanting to fucking break someone's nose. That's about as close as I've come. I mean, literally, actually, <laughs> leave the station one day because there was that kind of thing going on. And I said, all right, I'm going home before I do something that's going to lose my job. But that's the brother sisterhood. Yeah. Is it doesn't matter which town, township, counties is written on your badge, country. When you're a firefighter and one, one of your men and women die globally, you feel it. It, it. It's horrendous. Brotherhood is not just a fucking t-shirt. You know what I mean? And the problem is we've gotten away from that. And I think I don't, I haven't been in the fire service in 10 years, but I'm not saying that it's not still there, but from what I hear, cause I still, I'm, I'm, I do all these firefighter events and I do functions for firemen. I hear that it's nothing like it used to be. And that, that breaks my heart. Um, because like you just said, you had to leave because you were going to break somebody's nose. That's why I left the job in Charleston. It's because I wasn't able to control myself one day. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. I wasn't able. This shit means so much to me. What, what we go through and what we do for one another. And you don't dare desecrate it. And that's what happened leading up to my dismissal from being a firefighter. Um, I know we got off off point. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go back in. So I know you transitioned from the Marines. Was it law enforcement your first? No. So I had split service, right, with the fire department. Okay. Um, so when I got out of the Marines in, in 2000, I came home. Um, I was excited to, to, to come back to being a fireman. And I'm going to – I went back home to my hometown, Bluffton, South Carolina. It was a small department. We had three stations. We covered a huge area. We had one of the deadliest roads that ran through um, our, our jurisdiction, and I think it was um, the third deadliest in America back at the time, and that was um, South Carolina Highway 170. It was a two-lane road that ran from Savannah, Georgia, up into Beaufort, and it was just nothing but pine trees, and the problem was it ran to Bluffton and Hilton Head, where Hilton Head was a party spot, Savannah was a party spot, Beaufort was a party spot, and so people would travel these roads and unfortunately, I know we had nine fatalities in one month on that fucking road. I mean, it was it was unreal. We had a, a, a goddamn a Cessna plane crash in the middle of it. I mean, that that road just was awful, right? We have the same I-75 here between yeah. us and Gainesville. It's bad. There's, yeah, Payne's Prairie. Just so many deaths on that stretch. It's so sad. Um, I remember an eight-year-old boy got hit by a... Um, we called it a Pearlstein truck. It was a Pearlstein was a beer distrib- distribution company got hit by a beer truck and it ripped his entire face off. And I remember I wasn't on this call, but I remember the guys telling me about this call when I was young, the firemen that I used to hang around and they were like, 
if you ever do this job, these are the things you're going to have to do. And I remember them talking about it and it hurting them. Um, and I still, even though I wasn't on that call, when I drive by that road, right where that happened, I think about that little eight year old boy and I never knew him. I mean, these, but I think about it because of the impact that these guys had on me telling that story. Cause I knew it fucked them up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and that's not even thinking about all the family members and yeah, bystanders and everything right. else that was affected by that that's one right. incident. So when I, when I, when I got back to, <clears throat> to bluff, then I go to the fire Academy and I'm out of the fire Academy. My first shift or second shift, it was very quick. Um, I'm working, uh, go figure another fatal wreck. Now, by this time, when I was f- between 15 and 18, I started riding the fire trucks to calls more. Right. And I'd been to more fatal wrecks. And so I was by this time, I don't know, man, I, I had probably been to 10, 11 of these things, if not more by the time I was out of the Marines and my first day back on the, as a full professional firefighter paid, paid professional firefighter. So my first or second shift, either way, it was, um, there was a head on collision on that highway 170 and there was a lady dead and there was another lady who was, she was very, very messed up and it was just back to work. Let's do it. And here we go. And we're cutting dead people out of cars. And, um, we're, when we're done with this, we're going to, we're going to clean this damn scene up. We got hydraulic fluid all over the, all over the road. Let's throw some sand on it. Let's get back to the house. Cause we got, we got dinner to make, man, you know? And, uh, I see that ladies, uh, this woman in particular, I can, I can picture her face in my mind right now. I can picture her hair right now. It was like anybody's little grandmother who just went to the salon and got their hair done. Um, not looking for sympathy, but it's just ingrained. Oh, and most people that listen know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. And that's why I say that. And, yeah. it, and it's like, they know, and it's you, I can't remember every single fatal one, but there's certain ones that stick out. Um, I'll never forget that woman screaming that it was a Mexican lady and she was screaming this ungodly scream as we're cutting her out as her feet were wrapped around the brake pedals and stuff. And I mean, we're having to roll the dash and do all this stuff and it's those screams, right? Um, I like to think when we come on this job as firemen, we never set out to hurt people. We only want to help and we come on their worst day and nobody wants people to have a bad day, but we all say it. Well, fuck, if it happens, it wanted to happen on my shift because I'm the one that's going to help. And that's how I felt. I'm the one that's going to help. Well, one day we get a call. I'm out of the academy, not, not too long out of the academy, um, months within months. I'm a young dude, man. I got on my superhero cape, you know, and I, I if it's going to happen, it needs to happen while I'm working. Damn it. Cause I'm the one that's going to help. And, um, the call I'm about to tell you about is the day that I, I killed a man. And, um, his name was Angelo Bruin and I killed him. And it's, it wasn't something I did intentionally. This wasn't a guy who died in our care. It was just who was hanging on life and limb. And he just happened to fade away into the, the, the darkness. I'm telling you, I killed him. Everything I did on this scene led to his death. And it's hard for me because I've, uh, I've, I've always, always had that on me. Um, I know I can't bring him back. Nothing, nothing I can do about that. But what I can do is hopefully tell my story to, you know, let folks that are listening know that, you know, maybe you go through, maybe you went through something similar. Maybe there's that police officer out there who's on a, 
a hostage rescue team, I don't know, and he rounds a corner and he tries to shoot uh, a suspect and accidentally shot the hostage. You know what I mean? That's what you got to live with, you know, and it's like, fuck. So what happened? We received an ordinary call for a, a, a patient having a seizure, man. And um, I was just a first responder. I wasn't an EMT. We, our department back then, we ran with the county EMS. And anytime we rolled to a medical, we rolled as first responders. They rolled a paramedic and an EMT on the bus. And uh, that's just how it was. So they get they get a crew of five that showed up, three firefighters, a paramedic, and an EMT. And um, I run inside with the paramedic. Actually, we all ran in initially to assess what's going on. Uh, not run, but we walked in there. And there's this guy on the floor. He's he's kind of in and out of consciousness. You could tell. Um, he's just laying there on his back, looking up. We're in this very dark, dim, dingy house, and it was in a was I wouldn't say it's in a rough neighborhood or anything. It was just it's one of those houses, man. And um, he starts going into a full blown seizure. The, the paramedic had her drug box with her and right when he started doing that, she drops to her knees. She drops to her knees and then she, um, opens up the drug box and she starts getting, uh, loading up some drugs and she looks at me and says, do you know how to spike a bag? And well, shit, I was in Marine Corps infantry, man. We used to spike bags all the time because when we were out in the desert dying of dehydration, we spiked bags and our corpsman was throwing IVs and dudes left and right. And so we always helped our corpsman by spiking these bags. Um, I said, yeah, I know how to spike a bag. She goes, well, good. Spike me one real quick. Well, the EMT and the other two firemen were outside getting, getting a stretcher. And they were having to navigate through a fence and all that. And it was just taking them a little while. Um. So I reach out, I reach in drug box, grab bag and spike it and hang it. And, uh, I'm like, all right, you're good to go. Um, she throws that, she throws that IV in, she pushes that Valium. And I mean, within seconds, his family, not only did we kill him, kill him in front of his family. Um, within seconds, he stopped breathing and the family looked down and goes, why is he not breathing? And the paramedic at the time goes, oh, that's just the effect from the Valium. And, uh, holy fuck, did you hang that bag? And I said, yeah. And she goes, fuck, we just killed him. Just like that. She said it just like, God, it gives me chills, man. Cause, and when she said that, she said it in front of the family. And when she said that, they came unglued on us, man. I mean, it got very violent in there very quick. And it's all we could do to gather up our shit and to hastily get him out of there. I mean, it was like a, an emergency evacuation. So... I don't know what's going on. I don't know why we just killed him. You know what I mean? I just know that this lady said we killed him. Yeah, because you said, just to reiterate, you weren't even an EMT that's no. been doing a bunch of medical with medics. You literally no, a fire-only unit I, I knew that CPR, basically brother. has an extra set of hands on that's medical it. calls. Yeah. That's it. What happened was when I spiked that bag, in that drug box, they had two different types of solution. They had saline and they had lidocaine. I didn't know the difference. I just grabbed one. It was all saline to me. That's all we used overseas. Well, I spiked the lidocaine bag. And when the lidocaine mixed with the Valium, it stopped his heart instantly. And uh, there was no bringing this guy back at all. And uh, we we pumped him all the way to, you know, what, the CPR, all the way to the hospital. It was like 30 minutes away or 20. And it was every everybody was in the back of that bus. Me, the paramedic. 
the EMT, another firefighter. We had to take the fire truck out of service. They drove the damn, uh, another fireman drove the, drove the bus. I mean, it was everything we could do to get this man to come back. And he just, there was no bringing him back. And I, I remember when we got to, uh, to the ER, I lost it, man, outside on the, uh, on the pad with the, where the ambulance was back in. And I mean, I'm out there just dying, crying. Cause I knew what I did caused this. And it's like, fuck man, I, I got in this business to hurt, to help. I mean, to help people, not to hurt people. And now it's like, am I a fuck up? Am I a failure? You know, I start thinking about, you look back on my, I'm a, here I am the class clown. You know what I mean? Never taking things serious. And I'm fucking, I'm out here killing people, man. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. So we were ordered back to the chief's office. And uh, when I got to the chief's office, man, I'm, I'm still, I mean, I was in a fit. And I didn't really show emotions. You know, I was, death wasn't anything that was very new to, new to me. You know, I'd seen it plenty of times, been a part of it. But, man, I just took this guy's life trying to help him. That's it. I mean, that's what. How do you process that? So the chief sits me down and he talks. He wanted to know what happened. And ultimately what ended up happening was the, the paramedic got fired. And I don't know if she lost her license or not. And I, I, I think the county had a, a lawsuit. They had a settlement. And nothing ever happened to me. Not that I'm, I'm happy about that. But I think it goes back to that good Samaritan law that you hear, you hear all these good Samaritan things out there. Well, could you be liable for this? No, no, good Samaritan, good Samaritan. Nothing. I talked to the chief in the office that day and nothing ever came of it. And that still just, it blows my mind. I was like, man, I just fucking killed this guy. Like, how was I able to be a fireman after that? I was just able to just go on and keep doing the job. You think that won't make you have second guesses on emergency scenes? As you start going on in, in, through your career. Yeah, that's so sad because, I mean, that's just such an instantaneous yeah. momentary mistake. I, I had a, and this was this was a, a different thing completely, but I had a gentleman, David Hughes, and his son, Drew, um, fell on a skateboard, banged his head, and very long story short, the medics knocked him down, RSI, so they knocked down a res- respiratory drive, did not sedate him, intubated him did not use any capnography or anything and he they intubated his esophagus and he was awake while he suffocated and had no way of telling people you know i can't breathe it was awful but and that was a much there were a series of errors you know but what's so sad of what you did is you know it someone died so it's horrendous but it's also an innocent mistake because you as a non-medic emt look in a bag Oh, I was a Marine. This is what a saline bag looks like. You reach for it and you spike it. As a medic, obviously, we're supposed to check it and make sure that it's right or, or verify that it's not the lidocaine. I know now the bags with the drugs usually have a completely different packaging than, than the other ones. But it's, you know, it's so sad because then you add the stress, the sleep deprivation, you know, the lack of training, all these other things. It is so easy for us to kill someone by a mistake. I'm glad you said what you said about the paramedic. It's ultimately up to us, right? So this is what this is why she was fired. It did come down. She it was her responsibility to check, not only check the clarity, to check the label, and it was her responsibility and only her responsibility to have her hands in the drug box. Nobody else's. Nobody else is allowed. Her EMT back then. I don't know if it's changed, but the EMT back then was not even allowed to be in that drug box. 
And it, the shitty thing is I was just trying to help her. You know, she needed my help. Hey, I'm here. What can I do? Um, and she ended up losing her job over it. And I'm sure I've never talked to her since then. I don't know where she went and I'm sure she's had sleepless nights and I'm sure that that call still weighs on her. But, um, yeah, that's what it boils down to is the paramedic has ultimate responsibility over it. And it's just unfortunate, but now I'm going to get into telling you about this tough guy shit and how we are taught to bury everything. And man, it was not long. I mean, I literally walked out of the chief's office and I'm not going to say this guy's name because he's, I like the guy. He was an asshole, but he's no different than me. You know what I mean? I, be, I ended up becoming this person. I walk out of the chief's office. I walk across the bay and walk into the day room. Now they know what happened. There's a, a whole a whole group of guys in there. The second I walk in, you know what fuckers say to me? Hey, it's the Latticane kid or the heartbreak kid, heart stop kid. They immediately start making jokes immediately after I just killed a man. I mean, here it is. Just, just twist that shit even more and see, let's see if he breaks. You know what I mean? And what do you do at that moment? You suck it the fuck up. Cause you know what you do. If you show a fireman, something bothers him, bothers you. It's not going away. So you suck it up and that's what we do. And that's, that's the person I would later become man. Cause that's how I was brought up. And, um, after a few years in Bluffton, um, at Bluffton fire, uh, I would go on to see, you know, some, some fire fatalities and more, more vehicle wrecks with fatalities. And I care to care to even acknowledge suicides. You know, I mean, it's the standard run of the mill stuff. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and act like I've seen more stuff than other people. Cause we've all seen the same, same stuff, different city. You know what I mean? Well, what, what happened with my career was I ended up meeting a guy named Shane Albers. He was a Charleston firefighter off of engine two. And he was a larger than life guy, man. He was, man, he was just such a cool dude. I met him when I was in Charleston one day, just kind of on vacation. And he, I was at, they, in Charleston, we have some old firehouses, like really old 1800 style houses downtown. There's several of them. And I walked by this one and I loved it. And I was just looking at it. And I started talking to Shane and I was like, man, it must be so cool to work here. He goes, Oh dude, we love, we love being firemen here, man. It's a great city to work in. And he goes, you want a job? I was like, damn. I was like, you do the hiring yourself. And he, <laughs> he was the engineer. He goes, nobody goes, uh, if you, if you're tight with the chief, so we can get you on. And I go, Oh, awesome. Well, who's tight with the chief? He goes, come with me. He walks me upstairs. This is how this is how this was now. He walks me upstairs and introduced me to Chief Rusty Thomas. And Chief Rusty's just this loud, boisterous Southern Charleston dude. And he's like, oh, Shane O. He's Shane, Shane O. When Shane walked in and uh, Shane goes, Chief, this man, he's he's already a fireman. He's already certified. He's been at the academy and everything. He wants a job. And Chief goes, you want a job here in Charleston Fire Department? What makes you think you can be Charleston Fireman? And because uh, they prided themselves on being cowboys. And I was like, I don't know. I'm up for the challenge, you know? And he, I said, I'm certified. And he says, yeah, which, what, what kind of certifications you got? I said, well, I got firefight, if sack one, if sack two, hazardous uh, materials. I got, um, confined space rescue. I started going on and he goes, no, no, go ahead and stop. You don't need all that other shit. <laughs> <laughs> he said it just like that, man. And so he goes, I tell you what, you fill out your application, bring it back to me. And uh, I said, all right. So we walked out and Shane goes, dude, you got a job. And I said, what do you mean? I got a job. He goes, he wants you. He says, that's all a formality. Just bring your shit back. So I rushed back to Bluffton. It was like two hours away, man. And I got my paperwork done and I brought it back up there. See, back then you went around human resources. 
any anybody that applied for the fire department through human resources, it never made it to the chief's desk. Chief had stacks of papers who he wanted to hire. Um, nepotism at its finest. So I brought my paperwork back and I brought all those certifications because I thought he was kidding. Dude, I brought a, a manila envelope full of certifications, slid it across his desk. He pulls out the three that he needed and took the rest of them. And he's like, you throw these in the trash. You don't need these here in Charleston Fire Department. I was like, God dang, man, he's serious. So he hired me right now. And I got a job. And being that Charleston, they only took people that were certified. So they didn't have to put on an academy. But they had what we called back then one week. And it was a brutal, brutal week. And all it was was to see if they could get rid of you. It's not trying to compare it to Navy SEALs, but it was like back then. It was was, was like a hell week. That's all it was, man. It was one man throwing 35-foot ladders, whereas that's a three-man job, okay? You had to be able to throw a 35-foot ladder multiple times. All we did is hydrant hookups all day long, and the truck would roll up. I mean, it would fly up on you so fast, and you take this pony section of five-inch, and you had to make it so straight and so tight with no kinks, and you did it over and over and over, and then you would run up and down this damn tower, and then what they would do back then, because like I say, this was in the early 2000s, and all they were about is fighting fire. And we fought fire with booster lines. We were did interior attacks with one inch booster lines. And people after that sofa superstore, like, oh, your motherfuckers are crazy. That's how it was, man. You don't think booster fire, a booster can put out some fire. I'm telling you from experience, I've seen two boosters pulled on big fires and we knock them down. And the reason is shouldn't have to justify it. But back then, all these houses in Charleston, they're so tight and they're so old. When one gets going, it is a matter of seconds before the other one goes. So, what we would do is we'd, we'd pull that booster and just at least start getting something on it while somebody else could flake out the inch and a half or the two and a half or whatever it was calling for. Um, but by that time, by the time they got it all flaked out, charged up and everything, a big bulk of the fire would be knocked down a lot of times. So that's why we were so aggressive with those booster lines. Uh, so, yeah, and again, that's that's one of the things that you heard out of that. So that wasn't mm-hmm. your primary line. No, It was hell. a fast, fast attack line, the same way that's, as, as a water can. I, mean, that's, that's I've, a, I put out a kitchen fire with a water can before. Exactly. I was like, whoa, shit. Something's better than nothing, yeah. right? And the water's immediate. It's already there. You know, they pull a lever, boom, it's charged. But when you're sitting here in Charleston where you got very tight streets, it's not like out here in this neighborhood where you can pull up and you have all this area to lay stuff, man. I mean, there is a lot of congestion on these little tight streets and you'll flake out, you know, however many feet of inch and a half or inch and three quarters that you have. And it's going to be all kinked up. You can't get it straight. And then before you know it, you got five houses burning. I've been to those. I mean, the fire will start licking these other houses and then things will get going fast. It's all wood frame construction. Every bit of it. it? Yep. All balloon frame and wood frame. Yep. Balloon, wood frame. Um, So anyway, in this academy, (laughs) this hell week, they would take us to see just how tough we were. And they'd pour, and I was telling you about this earlier, they would pour diesel fluid in in uh, in our drill tower in the bottom floor and light that bitch. And guess what? You had to go in there. You could have an air pack on your back, but you couldn't put your mask on your face. And all you do, the whole drill was suck smoke. Learn how to learn how to stay alive in this environment with this smoke. Right now we're going back. This is just reiterating tough guy shit. Right. This is all I've ever known. You can leave. You can walk out of the building after you sucked up and hacked up some smoke, but you got to know what it's like, because if you don't know what it's like, you're going to panic. And I understand that mindset. But goddamn, there's got to be a better way than sucking up diesel smoke. I mean, yeah, it, like put your mask on. <laughs> yeah. But 
that's what it was, man. And so you would go in this drill tower and some guys would run out of there and they'd be like, ah, oh, he can't fucking take it, you know, because because he only lasted a minute. And I'm dude, a minute with a room full of diesel smoke. That shit. That's that's rock star status. If you ask me, I mean, we would literally be on the ground kissing this dirty ass, wet, soot covered concrete slab floor with our lips trying to suck any little bit of air off of the bottom of this bitch we could before we go on air. Um, that's how it was, man. And uh, then we had this big, huge diesel pit that they would burn. And it was so big, they'd have to sometimes um, let the airport know because it was that, that much smoke that would come off. They would light this son of a bitch, and we would take, I can't remember what size line we would use. I want to say it might have been a two and a half with a fog nozzle. And we'd take one two and a half, and we'd fog it all the way out. And we'd stack one one behind uh, the other, four or five of us. And we'd go up and get as close to this big-ass diesel pit as we could. And the problem was the flames were so big and just vicious. They would start licking around that fog pattern. And the guys in the back, it would start getting to them, man. I mean, so it's like you had to just really work this thing to keep the fire off of everybody. In the interim, guess what we didn't have? We were wearing air packs. All that smoke was rolling right through us. You couldn't see the guy in front of you. You know what I mean? We're just sucking that shit in. Got to be a tough guy. Then when you finish that, go through that 35-foot ladder a few more times in Charleston when it's nice and 100-degree day with 100% humidity. I was just there this summer. So I, yeah. can, I can envision but the heat, the it's, it's humidity. It's the earth asshole, man. It's hot. But, uh, but we prided ourselves on that, and we prided ourselves on the mentality of going in and getting after these fires. And I loved it. I got assigned immediately to Engine 6 with my buddy Lewis Mulkey off of Cannon Street, downtown Charleston, one of the busiest firehouses in Charleston on the east side. I can't tell you how many fires we went to. I mean, it was, it just, it never stopped. And it was one after another. I mean, we'd have days, obviously, where we didn't have anything going on. But back then, man, it was, that place was burning up. And uh, I remember being in fires and uh, we had one guy, he's a friend of mine on Facebook, Johnny Cameron, man. He's like a legend. He was on Engine 15. We had, uh, he was a captain. We had this piss ripping fire off of Nassau street. And this is when it, I, the first time I was really ever amazed by another fireman. And I'm pulling, I'm pulling an inch and a half, right? When we pull up, we pull two inch and a half. So we pull two boosters. They're stretching in, which meant back then we were taking two and a halfs off. And I see a lady trying to jump out of a third floor window. And I look at Lewis. Lewis is my buddy. He was later killed in the Sofa Superstore fire. Um, I don't know if I already mentioned that, but I yelled to Lewis. I'm like, Lewis, we need a ladder. This lady's trying to jump. Lewis, with he had so much adrenaline going through his body. You know those hooks that hold the ladder on the side of the truck where you have to pull it out and with turn the spring, it? spring, yeah. He yanked it. It came the fuck off of the truck. <laughs> like It broke. That's how much adrenaline was going through him. So Lewis being the engineer, supposed to be with the rig, I dropped the inch and a half. I think he's going to give me this ladder so I can throw it. Lewis throws the ladder. And as soon as he throws it, I run up it. This motherfucker wanted credit for the rescue so bad. He runs up behind me and knocks me off of the ladder and grabs this lady (laughs) and comes down. He's like, I got her. I got her. And I was like, you motherfucker. Well, she was a crackhead and she took off running. She never came back. And I was dying laughing. I said, I said, I said, you ain't going to get credit for that one. motherfucker." (laughs) So, um, anyway, I, I went back to my hose line. I grabbed an inch and a half, and uh, where I'm following in behind engine 15. They got a crew going inside. Captain Johnny Cameron did not have a pack on his back. And this house 
is front to back with fire, side to side. It looked like it was coming out of every orifice. We didn't do defensive attacks. If there was an opening, we were going in back then. That's just how it was, man. I remember we were so deep in this house. I'm looking at him at one point where I can finally see him a little bit. I was like, how is he in here with no pack on? And he's talking on the radio like it was nothing. He just eating this shit up. And I just remember being starstruck, like, oh, my God. And and to me, back then, that's that's who you wanted to be, right? How ignorant is that? How stupid is that? Thank God he's still around. But who knows what the future holds for him. But that's how he grew up. And he came up through the fire service. But that's who we idolize, these tough guys. Like, oh, my God, man, you got to be able to breathe this stuff in. And now fucking guys are dropping left and right. And you, you hear the story again. I, I've heard this, I believe. I'm, I'm, I think I've heard it from my, my British counterparts too, but it doesn't matter what department you are. When the SCBA first came in, that stays on the fucking rig. Don't touch that unless Don't you matter. absolutely yep. need it. That, it's that's craziness. And yeah. it's kind of the same as we'll talk about later with the whole mm-hmm. mental health. Yeah. You know, like, yep. oh, actually, it might be a good yeah. idea. The to counselors talk about are it. there, but we don't need them. I became that guy. Um, so what inevitably I would, uh, I shouldn't say inevitably, um, after about a year with Charleston fire, I mean, we were having so much fun. I'm going to tell you one last story before I move on. One story that, that really comes out in my book that affected me was there was a, there was a guy named Rodney who was, who was murdered and burned. They, uh, they burned his body and, I don't know if he died from the blunt force trauma when they hit him in the head with whatever object they used or if he died from them lighting him on fire. But here's what happened. One night we get called. It was like two in the morning or something like that. And uh, we call for a structure fire and it was off of meeting street downtown. And we roll out of the house and my captain, Captain Joe Ackerman at the time, he just, he just recently passed away himself, but we pull up on the scene, we get out, and he, he calls off all the other units because you know you know house fire and commercial building fire smoke. You know what that smells like, and then you know dead body smoke. This is a dead body smoke. Somebody called, they smelled smoke, they called in a fire. This was definitely dead body. I mean, the second we get off the rig, we're like, oh, fuck. So we walk, we walk behind this building, and this man is just fully engulfed. I mean, it's he's still burning. So we, we grabbed a booster, I mean, and just, and just cracked it real quick, knocked it out. And, um, he's laying face down and I'll spare all the, all the details in it because, you know, I, I get descriptive in the book, but for time's sake, I'll just tell you, I'm on my knees next to him. Lewis is on his knees across from me and Captain Joe is standing there on the radio. Um, and I'm looking at Lewis and I remember him looking at me and we just both had this look like, what in the fuck, man? This guy was so burnt. It was just disgusting. And the way that his body was laying, he had one arm in front of him and one was um, kind of bent like a chicken wing. Well, in our infinite wisdom, we went to roll him over. We didn't think to roll him to the side where his arm was straight. We rolled the chicken wing side and his fucking arm snapped off. That's how bad he was burnt. And then we're sitting there in his flesh after there was a pool of water that he was now laying in after we put him out and his flesh is all sticking on our pants, you know? And I just remember, I remember that scene because honestly over the years, it would have just been another scene. But the reason that scene is important to me now is because my buddy Lewis was burned alive in that fire. And that night I was on my knees next to his body 
looking at him in the very exact same condition, just laying in a different position. And I remember thinking about that. And, uh, it's just, it was just very powerful. Um, but we'll get to that later. So I want to get to the sofa superstore in a moment, but you did mention that you were dual certified. So you were playing, uh, playing, that's the wrong phrase. You were a police officer as well. So tell me about that section of your career. Okay. So, <clears throat> so after, um, after that incident that I was just talking about with Lewis, I stayed on the job in Charleston for a little while longer. My first stint with Charleston fire was a year, but I met a, I met a North Charleston police officer and he at the gym one day and, and he just, we started talking about the, the police side of it. And I was always, um, intrigued by law enforcement as well, you know, cause I come from a tactical background being an infantry Marine. And so the more I talked to him, um, the, just the more appealing it sounded, you know, and, and, and I liked being a fireman. I loved it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And what got me was when I went on a ride along, this guy's name was Tyler and he took me on this ride along and man, it was like, living in a cops episode it, it but it was non-stop and north charleston back then it's still it's still a very happening place for, for law enforcement but back in the early 2000s man it was like the wild west over there and it was just unbelievable you see a lot of stuff in in in, in fire but when we are in our firehouses sleeping and watching TV and cooking and laughing and joking, these law enforcement officers out there getting after it, man. And we, we don't get to see a lot of the stuff they go to. Now they get to see most of the stuff we go to, but it doesn't work the other way around. We're not on the foot pursuits. We're not on the car chases. We're at the tail end of those things. If something bad were to happen, but something bad doesn't always happen. So anyway, I, I end up getting hired by North Charleston police and, um, it was, man, it was such an exciting part of my life. And I was every bit of that police officer that fit in, but I didn't because of the way that I am. I still like to joke. I still like to fuck with people. I, um, I was serious when I needed to be. And then I was, um, not serious at times when I, when I didn't need to be. And, when we went to the police academy, we went to a statewide academy. And so all the agencies came. And I remember the first day we're in there, North Charleston, we had our guys there. And the instructor, the lead instructor said, if you're from North Charleston Police Department, raise your hands. And so we raised our hands. And he goes, everybody take a look around. I'll never forget this. He goes, and all the other potential um, candidates were looking at us. And the instructor said, these guys are going to see more in six months than you will in 10, 10 years, if not your entire career. And I remember being blown away at that thinking, man, really? And I'm not bullshitting, boy. The first day I hit the street, it was like that. And uh, we we wouldn't survive policing the way that we policed back then. Um, just, just because of the PC culture. I'm not saying we did anything wrong. But it was more of a, we were un- unapologetic back then. And we weren't going to hold your hand and cry alongside of you because you're going to complain on a traffic stop and all this. And I mean, our attitude back then was like, look, we're not having fucking court out here. Go have court in court, you know, have a good day. And I'm not saying we were assholes on purpose, but we just didn't coddle the way that I feel like society's coddled. Now my law enforcement career didn't last that long. It was, uh, it was only two years 
and I got, I actually got fired for something that I didn't even do. And anybody that's in law enforcement can tell you, you're always on the verge of losing your job in law enforcement. How these guys make it 30 years in that profession is at least as a fireman, you got to fire yourself, right? You can do the dumbest shit as a firefighter and still have a job. But as a police officer, it takes nothing. And it's very, very political. Um, and I'm not bashing that profession at all because I'm pro law enforcement like a son of a bitch. I absolutely love cops. Um, and I love what they do. And I, I do all these, I, I do functions for them. And I, it actually makes me, me jealous that I, I can't do the job anymore because it was a lot of fun, but I, I wasn't cut out for it. Just my mentality and the way that I joke around and, and I just, I can't be 100% serious all the time. You know what I mean? I, I got to cut up. So I ended up getting fired for something I didn't do. And that hung over me for a long time. And, uh, I actually, it took me eight years, but I was able to, to prove it. And it was kind of neat because the, the police chief at the time, we actually uh, had a, a reconciliation in the gym one day. We, we had a discussion about it and we shook hands and, and everything was cool. And I was mad at the time when I got fired because I felt like it wasn't my choice to leave. And now I'm going to go on this path in life somewhere else. But that's what we have to see in these inopportune moments. Sometimes our life does get redirected. And we get upset and we fight it tooth and nail and we actually make our life even harder than it has to be instead of just going with the natural flow of the universe. I'm I'm not a spiritual person, but after all the things that have happened in my life, I only leads me to believe this. Like we are redirected and this is how I got redirected for buying, being fired for something I didn't do. Guess what I did? I picked up the phone. I called Chief Rusty Thomas back at Charleston Fire because now I was. I was in the club and I said, Hey chief, things aren't working out at the fire police department. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, I just got fired. And he goes, well, shit, you want a job over here? <laughs> so he goes, I got an opening on engine 16. So I said, well, yeah, I would love. He goes, well, come on down here. Let's get your paperwork going. So just like that, I left on a good note. You know what I mean? So when I left the police department on a so-called bad note, another door opened and hadn't, had it not have been for that, all these other things wouldn't have been carved out in my life, my family with my kids, my comedy career, me doing motivational speaking and talking to people about post-traumatic stress and depression and how to keep from suck starting pistols and jumping off a roof to kill yourself. You know what I mean? None of that would have happened. So here I am, 2005, back in Charleston Fire Department, and I couldn't believe how much I missed it when I walked in the doors. It was just that overwhelming brotherhood, the hugs, the kisses, the high fives, the instant, Hey, let's fuck off here in the firehouse all day and let's have fun. That's I missed it and I needed it. I wasn't on engine 16 for only a couple of weeks until uh, ladder five had an opening and I always wanted to be on a ladder truck. So I liked ladder work and, uh, ladder five had an opening. So I went over there and, uh, that was my home for the next five years until I ended up leaving the, the department after my injuries. Um, When I was over at Ladder 5, you know, I just skipped over a bunch of emergency calls. And I'm not going to sit here and, and go through every single bad emergency call because it's just, it's, I don't want it to be mundane. And, um, but like these, anybody that's listening to this knows, we, we certainly run a hellacious amount of, of bad things. And I can talk about funny stuff. It's, it's being a cop all day long. I got tons of funny stories. I talk about them on stage in my comedy all the time. Um, what I will get to is, um, how the events leading up to the sofa superstore 
and how all of that uh, kind of took place and then uh, my life afterwards and how uh, how it changed. Well, so my buddy Shane Albers, one day I'm coming into Ladder 5 and, uh, the, you know, Shane is the guy that got me hired. He got me the job in Charleston and uh, we were good friends. And I'm getting dressed one morning for work and I'm watching the news before I'm running out the door, seeing if anything burned up because, you know, if, if, if the shift before us caught a fire, I'd at least like to have a heads up. We're going to have to come in and clean all their shit, you know, or if they're still on scene or whatnot. Well, they're just going to be smug as fuck when you walk through the door. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, or just natural jealousy. Oh, this motherfucker's got a nice big working <laughs> fire and we didn't. So I turn on the news and uh, there's never a shortage of, uh, of news in Charleston and I saw that a man was killed in a uh, motor vehicle accident and I didn't think anything of it, you know, um, shit, that's all the time. Right. And, uh, so I, I put on my gear or not my gear, but my, my uniform, I had to work and I pulled up out front of ladder five and I was on C shift. And so B shift who we were leaving was standing out there. And most of the guys from C shift were there and they're all else out front and everybody just looked sad. And I remember I was like, what the fuck's wrong with them? Who died? And I get out of my car and um, my engineer walks over and he goes, hey, man, um, did you hear about Shano? We call him Shano. And I said, no, what what happened? And he goes, Shane got killed last night in a, in a wreck on John's Island. And right then it hit me. That was the wreck I was watching on the news. So that just, I mean, I hit like a ton of bricks. And then just out of curiosity, you know, we got, we got on the, the ladder truck and we had to go. We had to go see the site where Shane was killed. And so we drove down there and. We saw all the wreckage from everything and we're just looking over. His truck was in a, um, a junkyard now down the street and we, we went by that and looked at that and I'm sitting there looking in his truck. Couldn't believe it. I was like, man, how, how does this happen? And on his, on a dashboard, there's a picture of Shane holding his son in a swimming pool. And so I grabbed that picture and I pulled it out and it actually tore the corner and that I took it to his firehouse and it's still in that firehouse today. It's still, it's still, it's framed up in there real nice of, of Shane and everything, but the reason I'm talking about this is because the day of the Super Superstore fire, June 18th, 2007, Shane was killed February 18th, 2007, four months to the day prior to Super Superstore. Well, the day of the Super Superstore, um, that was a B shift. So C shift and A shift were off. Then we had a golf tournament for Shane. We were trying to raise money for his family, you know, for needs and everything. And what do firefighters do best at golf tournaments? We get extremely intoxicated. Wreck golf cars. All the time, man. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's, that's funny you say that uh, because I have a picture of us with a golf cart in this big ravine. It's me and a captain. <laughs> and this is leading up to a creepy story with Lewis. I was the last person Lewis ever called on his, on his phone. Um, because word got back to Lewis. He was a ball busting machine. Lewis was word got back to him that we'd fucking wreck this golf cart and we were just out there getting completely hammered. So he, he calls my, my phone right when we were wrapping up the golf tournament and, uh, I saw him call him and I looked down at the phone and I was like, Oh fuck him. I'll call him back later. Right. And I never got to talk to him again. I hit ignore and it haunts me this day. So he leaves me this. He leaves me this, this voicemail. Lewis used to, if he liked you, he calls you a loser, right? And he goes, I, I listened to the voicemail. He's like, Travis, you fucking loser. I heard what y'all did over there. You and that Captain Van Hoy, you fucking bunch of losers. And he just kept going on and on. And I was just laughing and laughing. So I tried to call him back, but he didn't answer. And the reason he didn't answer is because at that time he had just gotten toned out to go to the sofa superstore. He was on his way to die. 
and I didn't know it. And uh, we had all just received word that so Superstore was on fire. We didn't know the extent of it yet. Uh, we knew it was um, a, a very bad store, a dangerous store. It's one of those in your district that you know, hey, man, if that thing goes up, we're going to have some problems. So I didn't know Lewis was going down there because Lewis was downtown, and this fire was on the west side on a different side of town. And uh, so we start heading that way. A bunch of off-duty guys, we're all, we're all drunk. And uh, we get to the scene, and uh, the first person I saw on scene was one of your guests who you've had. Is, uh, a lot of people know him in fire services, uh, Dr. David Griffin, who's a good friend of mine. And he, uh, he was pumping uh, Engine 11. And uh, I walked up to him, and I said, like, hey, Dave, what's going on? And he said, man, they can't find Lewis. I said, what do you mean he can't find him? And they go, Travis, we got a lot of guys in there they can't find. And we were all, I mean, I'm not saying we were falling down drunk. We had a buzz on and everything. And I remember I couldn't wrap my head around that. What are you talking about? We're Charleston Fire Department. What do you mean we can't fucking find anybody? Um, we have guys lost inside this building. What I did just, when it happens to you, you just, you can't process it. And so they were, they had just backed everybody out and the building collapsed. And, um, I remember running up to the front of the store when I realized this was, this was real and fire was still rolling out of the store very heavily. It's collapsed now, but I remember having my gear trying to go in with no pack on, no hose. I don't know what, what I was even thinking, but I, I was so pissed that everybody was standing outside knowing we have guys inside this massive, massive fireball. Why the fuck aren't we in there? Cause in Charleston, we don't come out of buildings. We go in, right? That's what we were always taught. I mean, I'd never even seen an evacuation. I didn't even know one existed. It just, it wasn't in our um, vocabulary, you know? So I try to go into this building and, and to this day, I don't know who it was. I, I get, I'm stepping up where this raised window was and uh, I'm, I, I literally thought I was going to go just do a Kurt Russell moment and just go through a bunch of fire and, and start pulling guys out. And I don't know who it was, but they they grabbed me so hard by the back of my coat and pulled me so hard. I fell down onto the pavement and there was tons of firemen. Around. And that's when it hit me. Uh, I was like, wait, I can't go in this building. This is, this is real. Like this ain't in backdraft. You're not going in here. This, we gotta, we gotta put this fucking fire out first. I get very descriptive in the book uh, for time's sake. I'm not going to talk about, you know, the ladder positioning and, and, and different operations that were going on, but um, I'm going to try to just talk briefly on what I, what I experienced inside that building that night. We, um, once the fire was suppressed enough, we could get some teams together to go in. They got about 15, 15 or so guys on, on like four and five man teams. And um, my team went through the Delta side. I had four, four guys on my team. Um, this is kind of tough to talk about, but we didn't have air packs on our backs because all the air packs were either taken or all the cylinders were completely empty. I mean, there were, it was just that massive and we didn't, we had other departments that were, that were showing up. They were there on scene mutual aid kind of thing, but they had their gear. We had ours. I mean, but only Charleston guys went inside that building that night. And, I was on body recovery team at the time. I thought I was going to be on a rescue team. I really thought, well, I don't care what's going on in this building. Our guys are just trapped or something and we'll get them, you know, cause I'm a, I'm a bull in a China shop. I'm a, I'm a big fucking dude and I'm a hell bent and, and I'm determined I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. Fuck. I told you it was going to be class clown. Didn't I? I was class clown. I can do it. 
So we make entry in the Delta side of this building, man. And, and it's just like the, the steel, the trusses was like twisted spaghetti. And they were, it was pancake collapse. It was a V collapse. It was a partial collapse. It was a lean to collapse. Every collapse that you learn in building construction was taking place in this building and just in different sections. I was using my flash hood. The smoke was so thick still at this point. I was using my flash hood to keep from dying. I mean, it was, we were literally gagging and choking and doing anything we could to breathe in, in certain parts. And then you would come, you would find an opening where the entire roof was missing and all the smoke had dissipated out of this area and you could breathe fine, right? Our eyes were burning. I remember at one time hiding behind a big piece of metal because ladder five and ladder four, which were tower ladders, they were still blasting the, the hot spots. And you know, we're not supposed to have firefighters in a building when the, when the towers are going, but all that shit went out the window this night. Like we had to get in there. We got master streams from both rigs shooting down on top of us and we're directing their fire. And then one, one big stream came raking across this piece of metal. And I remember both of those nozzles. We had a big fog nozzle and then we had a, a stack tip nozzle and they were both just, and it was so loud. It was like, you know what it sounds like when you're in a car wash? right in your car it was just like that magnified like a hundred when the master streams hit this big piece of sheet metal behind us um so we redirect their fire and we're crawling around in this building looking for any sign of life and there's just nothing i mean everything was so burnt you couldn't recognize anything i finally crawl up onto a spot i actually almost drowned in the building at one point because i tried to go underneath a beam and the water was so deep on the floor in this part that my face went under the water and my back got stuck under this beam. And I, and I remember thinking, I'm like, I'm not fucking drowning in here. I know that. So I backed back out and I had to find a different um, pocket to, to navigate through so I could get into a different search block. But uh, after crawling around for a little while, I see this piece of, um, I, see a, I see something silver, right? And we had those um, Scott air packs back then. That's what we had. And I didn't know it was a Scott air pack, but I knew it didn't match all the rest of the stuff that I was seeing. And it's just something was different about it. And so I low crawled on my belly up to this thing and I'm literally, it's literally in my face. I can touch it with my hands and I don't know what I'm looking at and I'm examining it. And that's when I realized I had my hands on a firefighter's shoulders. He didn't have a fucking head. It was burned off. There was no helmet. There was no head. That silver was a melted Scott air pack. And when I realized what it was, I remember taking my hands and I pushed back and I knew my hands were in a firefighter's body because everything was black. Our gear was black. I didn't see that that was his, the round thing that was underneath it. I didn't realize that was his body, but it was, and I didn't know who it was at, at that exact moment. And at that time, word had come out that we definitely were missing nine people. We thought at one point we were missing up to like 20, I think it was. But they, they dwindled it down to nine. Um, So I call the rest of my, my team over. Um, and as I'm sitting there looking, I realized what I was looking at. There, was a, uh, there were teeth on the ground. His skull was burned off, his jaw. The only thing that was there was teeth. And I was looking into the orifice of his neck and I could see a spinal column and I could see like coagulated blood. And that's what I see when I, when I see captain Billy Hutchinson 
when you look at the Charleston nine pictures, they have all their faces. I don't see those faces. I see what I saw in that building that night. Um, we realized that was Billy Hutchinson because later on when we had to try to partially identify these guys from the scene before the coroner came in and, um, she recorded their bodies with, uh, where they were laying with GPS, um, coordinates. And now there's a park and monument. There's a stat or like a cross on each part where, uh, that park where their bodies were in that exact spot. But that was Billy because what we did is, um, we went into the back of his, his pants, his back pants pocket. He had a wallet. We pulled that wallet out and his gear didn't burn. And we were able, as soon as we opened the wallet, we saw his driver's license credit cards. And that's when it really hit. It was like, this is real. And whatever nine guys are in here, they're all dead. And you knew it right then. There's no fucking way. Not one of them is even close to being alive because I've seen a lot of burnt bodies over the years. I've never seen one with their head completely burned off and the helmet was burned off the jaw, the skull, everything was just gone. Incinerated bro. And it was, um, it was intense. And so we marked him and then we continued to search and we knew the other teams had, had located a couple of guys and, uh, I know this sounds shitty, but I don't mean it to. I was I was really worried about uh, about Lewis because he was my best friend, and uh, Lewis was one of those guys. He had a lot of best friends. You weren't his best friend, but he was your best friend, you know. And uh, I just I wanted to find him. And uh, the next body I found was uh, Mark Kelsey. He was my entire my entire crew from B shift on my ladder truck. They were all dead. Mark Kelsey was on uh, on the ladder truck that day, so. We found him next, and when I rolled him over, um, he was laying face down. We found him in, a, in this little place where he was it was recognizable as a firefighter. That like that's clearly a fireman. We rolled him on his side, and it was. Uh, have you ever seen those three D images of a um, ultrasound of a baby? Yeah, yeah. So that's what his face looked like burned into his mask. God. It was. It was his face was baked into his fucking mask and his hands were in front of him. Like as if he saw that fire coming when it flashed and it's like, he put his hands up real quick and then fell down. We knew that was Mark cause we unbuttoned his coat and, um, we had metal name, name badges back then. The ones you pin through your shirt and it just said, uh, engineer M Kelsey. So we buttoned him back up, marked him and then, uh, kept searching and the next body we found was brandon thompson who was on uh ladder five as well brandon found his way to the back of the store and the only part of the store that was really kind of still standing it was like a block it was like a block area like i shouldn't say still standing but it was intact there wasn't a lot of fire damage there was a bunch of smoke damage to it and it was in a like a back storage area or i don't know what what the hell the area was because everything was burnt but it was there were blocks. I remember center blocks and it was just very bad smoke damage. Brandon's body was actually intact. Um, he was hunkered down in a corner. He made radio transmissions that night that he was lost and out of air. And, uh, I think what Brandon was doing was, was falling back on his train and he found a corner. He was getting low and he was just trying to get air from anywhere he could possibly breathe. When we turned Brandon over, he, um, he just had soot on his face and he just looked like he was sleeping and he had a cut on his, on his face. And he looked like he was just sleeping peacefully. 
And Brandon was the eighth guy we found, and we knew I knew that the next guy was Lewis. And so there's nothing we could do for Brandon, and we marked him. And I went back searching, and uh, I walked out of that room that Brandon was in, walked through another doorway, a burned out doorway, and I just happened to look down to my left, and uh, I saw Lewis. Yum. He was laying on his back um, to my left, and he had his uh, he had his left leg under his right, and there was a a large piece of metal across his his right leg, or this lower shin area, almost like he was he was trapped in. There's no way he would have lifted that fucking thing. I don't know if that happened before. Um, he died and he just knew he was, he was trapped or he, but if you haven't listened to the sofa superstore tapes, Lewis comes across the radio right before he dies and he makes a transmission and it is so fucking eerie. And he, car one was our head chief. And he says, car one engine 15 to car one, tell my wife. And there's a pause. And he says, I love you. Now, when you're talking over the radio in a fire, every firefighter knows it usually sounds like this. It's muffled. It's muffled when you're talking because of your face piece but lewis wasn't muffled he pulled his face piece off um he knew he was dying which leads me to believe did that metal fall on him and he was trapped and knew he couldn't get out and it was getting that hot and smoky and he was like fuck i'm done was he out of air or was he out of air and i'm done and then the roof collapsed later i don't know i mean we'll never know but he knew he was dead and so when i'm sitting here I couldn't even stand um, when I saw him. I collapsed uh, to my knees. And uh, so now I'm on my knees next to Lewis, just like me and Lewis were on our uh, were on our knees next to that burn guy that we we'd worked on years before. And uh, his hands or his hands weren't there. His his arm, all the meat was burned off of his arms, his coat, his fire coat, was, the arms of it were burned off and. Just his bones, his all known um, radial bone were, were sticking out, protruding on both arms. It's like he was reaching up to the sky. His head was bent back. His face was burnt off. His eyes were burnt out. His, uh, you could see down into his hollow eye sockets. And his, uh, Lewis had a very, um, his nose was very recognizable. And the cartilage is weird because the cartilage was still there. You could still recognize his nose. I, I can't explain this, but the skin was completely burned off. And uh, you could look at that skull and you knew it was him, but we didn't have confirmation it was him. And we had all these other big men around us sitting there. You could see it in their faces, man. And it just like, like somebody just pulled their soul out of them right there. And I, I knew when I write about this in the book and it's like, uh, I knew, I knew at that moment, everybody around us had, had changed and we had all died right there. Not just because of Lewis, but because of our other brothers too. Um, but we'd never be the same again. I don't care what you tried. <clears throat> um, so we're all talking and, and, and I think there was some discussion. Well, maybe it's not Lewis and maybe there's, Maybe he's somebody else. I don't know. 
because we did have another department working that scene with us. Maybe it's one of their guys, you know, and somebody's missing. They just don't know it. Um, <clears throat> so Lewis carried a bunch of tools in his pockets. He was notorious for having any kind of tool you needed in his cargo pockets. Well, his fucking cargo pockets were burnt off and next to his legs were all those metal tools. So I knew it was Lewis. Um, on his side, we had a radio. I reached down and turned his radio over and it said 15 C and that stood for 15 captain. And then I showed the guys, I go, this is Lewis. So we all had our moment there. We marked him. Um, the coroner came in and so we had to put him in a body bag and normally the coroner puts people in body bags as a fireman. I've never placed anybody into a body bag other than my own guys. I I never had experience actually body bagging people and I don't I mean maybe some fire departments do I don't know I actually have on one specific occasion okay so all the other hundreds and hundreds of calls I've been on I'd I'd never done it but we're trying to put our guys in these body bags and their bodies were distorted and they were burned into position and when you you know a burn victim it's almost like an extreme rigor mortis kind of thing and I remember trying to put Lewis into this bag and I didn't want to push too hard on his arms because I didn't want him to fucking break off like that guy's arm that we broke off who was burned. And I remember that zipper um, zipping it from toe all the way up to the head. Just that big fat fucking commercial zipper on that black body bag. and um, it's, It seemed to be like a the longest railroad track of a zipper. Like it just never zipped and but when we finally did it and it was, it was final, it was complete. And captain Kevin Storo collapsed on top of Lewis's body bag and he was crying on it so visibly that you could see water on the bag. I mean, that's the impact this guy he had. Um, and we let captain Kevin have his moment cause Kevin was, uh, Lewis's captain early and Ke- Kevin shaped Lewis and turned him into what he was. And so we got our guys and um we got them out of that out of that place. I often say that uh the hardest decision I've ever made The hardest decision I ever made in my life was volunteering to go inside of that building. But the most honorable decision I ever made was going inside of that building. To help bring them back. Um. That job wasn't for everybody. And it, uh, fuck, it certainly wasn't for us because nobody on that damn team, on those body recovery teams, lasted. We all ended up going. I take comfort. I take comfort in knowing that I was at least too, least able to have that moment with them. That it wasn't 
some other department that went in to, to retrieve them. Those are our guys. So at least they didn't have, you know, somebody they didn't know sending them home, you know. I take comfort in that. I, uh, but it haunts me and because I volunteered to do this. And when guys weren't raising their hands because they knew what was in that building, I was naive and I was fearless and I was determined that no, I, I'm going to find them. And so out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on that scene that night, only 15 or 20 of us tops went in that building after them. And, I was one of them, and um, and it fucked me up. How could it not? Like, how could it not? And uh, I stayed on the job for two and a half years. After that, I rode that rig for them, and I I did everything I could to honor them, man. But boy, I got fucked up after that, and I put myself in bad situations. I turned to alcohol. I was trying to kill myself unintentionally by doing dumb shit. I was very reckless and I know we're out of time right now and we don't have to get back to this but I needed to this is hard enough to talk about as it is and I was prepared to talk about it today so I needed to get that yeah so well I'm glad that I'm glad that we did because I yeah you know I wanted to be here to listen to it completely face to face yeah all right Travis so we are now doing part two um you are up now in South Carolina and I'm here at home in Ocala still um, so obviously where we left it was the day of the fire and you just found, you know, your brothers. So I'm going to give you the microphone back and we'll carry on. Yeah. So, uh, so that night after, after we got all of our guys, um, put in body bags and we escorted them out through the line of the procession of firefighters standing outside, hundreds and hundreds of firemen, uh, saluting them. We carried them out one by one. And uh, we loaded them up in, 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 the, uh, in these vans, and the vans took their bodies away. And I remember that night, we, we ended up staying all through the night into the next day. And my shift started the next day on uh, June the 19th. And we were there for several hours after my shift started. And then we just had to load the rigs up and uh, head back to our firehouse, uh, still in complete disbelief of everything that just happened. Um, I remember that somber ride back to the firehouse. I actually didn't ride my ladder truck uh, back. Uh, just, there were so many people just catching rides. We were just, firemen were jumping on any rig that they could. I jumped on engine 10, which was housed with ladder five uh, out of my, my station on the west side. And we drove back to the firehouse and back, back the rigs back in and we started our daily duty, you know, and that's how it is in, in emergency services, just that, what I was talking about earlier in this podcast is you can't get away from it. You know, we, here we are, we just, we just picked up nine of our, our dead friends from these, the remains of this building. And now it's back to business as usual. Uh, we went in that morning and I remember trying to get breakfast and, and, or an, or an early lunch, whatever it was. And people were just coming by the fire station in droves, you know, concerned citizens, people wanted to know who the fallen were. And only the families knew at this time. And uh, three of the guys from my house were, were no longer with us. They, they all left on that rig that night and never returned. And um, the hard part about that was when we were sitting in the firehouse, um, 
all the uh, the guys, their cell phones were in the back. And being that only family members knew, friends did not know. So everybody knows firemen. So I remember those cell phones ringing nonstop the entire like morning. And nobody wanted to go back there and shut them off because it wasn't our right to to go and shut their cell phones off. But I remember how eerie that was. And we eventually couldn't take it. So we, we had to go in there and, and turn their phones off. Man, it was just heartbreaking. Um, it wasn't long after that, that same day. I mean, news media started pouring in. CNN, Fox News, every, every big affiliate, every big news station. They were coming by. And if we walked outside of the firehouse, I mean, they were there in our faces. And we, we didn't want to talk to them. I mean, it was we were... We were pissed off. We were still trying to wrap our heads around this, and we had a microphone shoved in our faces. And um, I just remember how hard that was. And after it all, you know, cooled down a little bit, and after the names were released, and we, we went to the funerals. I mean, I was, I've never been a part of anything like that in my life. I mean, it was it was an emotional experience. This whole the whole ceremony that they had for all nine of our guys. They had them laid out draped in their coffins with American flags. We were inside the Coliseum here in Charleston. And I remember looking over Rudy, Rudy Giuliani was sitting there and uh, it's like anybody, everybody was at this ceremony. <clears throat> and after that ceremony, we started with the burials and I was already drinking very heavily after that, just, you know, naturally firemen hanging out together. And I remember not wanting to go home. I tried to go home and sleep in my own bed one night and I, I couldn't do it. I was scared. I was a grown man. The lights went out and I was scared and I wanted to be, I wanted to be with my, with my brothers. So I, I think I went back to the firehouse for about two weeks after that. I never saw my house after that. I packed my bags and I rode the rig every night, even when it wasn't my duty. Uh, I would get on the truck and just add extra manpower. And I felt like we can't let this happen again. Kind of mentality where if these guys roll out of here, I want to be there with them. Um, so I remember working two weeks straight and we weren't even logging the hours. You know, it was more of a volunteer thing. I was just there. And uh, where it started to get really bad was everybody was getting really short fused. Um, and you could see it happening. I mean, everybody was angry. We wanted answers, you know, we couldn't find them. Um, People were starting to talk about, hey, well, y'all, you guys might need to seek um, professional help. And of course, me being the way I am and the upbringing that I have and the backgrounds that I have, I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to go talk to anybody that reads out of a book. How are they going to understand what I just went through? Um, and so I started to get very angry and it, it all spilled over one afternoon when uh, we were at we we're at Melbourne Champagne's funeral. And it was a hot summer day and we're, we didn't have enough transportation. So the city, the city got a bunch of big buses for us. And, um, the funerals are so large. Most people just couldn't get in. So I remember this day we couldn't get into the funeral and to the, into the church. So a lot of us were still sitting on the buses and all those buses were firemen. There were children, there were families, there were wives, husbands, uh, on my bus, we had a good mix of families and firemen. And um, I remember getting into a verbal altercation on the bus with another fireman. And when I stood up in the aisle to confront him, he looked at me and said, what are you going to do, big boy? I mean, and without hesitation in front of 
I mean little kids. Without hesitation, I slapped him across his face harder than I've ever slapped anything in my life. And it buried him into the seat next to him. He fell on top of some people. And I just remember after that, the shock on these kids' faces and these wives' faces and even my firefighters' faces. They were like, oh, fuck. And uh, everybody started just, nobody said a word. Everybody just stood up and started walking off the bus until I was the only person on that bus. And it was like I was alone. Uh, I couldn't believe I just did that to a to a fellow fireman. And um, I felt remorseful immediately for it. I don't know where it came from. I think it was just the anger and building up inside of me. And, and unfortunately, that was a sign of many, many more to come. And uh, from there, I kind of started my, my dow- downward spiral. Um, I'd go on to be physically violent at the firehouse at least six or seven more times against other firemen. And uh, just a couple of quick scenarios was uh, one day my engineer walked up to me. We were training behind an old Kmart building and there were five companies of firefighters, uh, four engine companies, my ladder company. And uh, he just walked up to me and got close to me in my face. And I don't remember what he said. I want to say he had, he put his hand up around my neck, but I don't even honestly remember. I just remember slapping the shit out of him so hard that, he fell to the ground and did a cartwheel almost and has knocked his glasses off his face. And everybody again was looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with Travis? And then he got up and he was staring at me and I just started going crazy on him. And I was you know, saying things that I, I wouldn't have naturally said in my right mind. I mean, I wanted the confrontation. I wanted it. So we got back, got back on the rigs and everybody left out of there. And then it wasn't long after that. We were in the burn building that are doing um, doing ladder operations with a couple of injured companies. And we had some state certified instructors down observing us because the spotlight was on Charleston back then. They wanted to, everybody was watching everything we were doing. And we were in the drill tower. And uh, again, my engineer, he, he falls down to the ground in, in the drill tower. He was in that fire too. And he was all fucked up from it. And uh, he started hallucinating. And he started screaming our dead guys' names in the middle of the tower. And we have smoke going in there. We're in a a live operation, although it's training. So I picked him up off of the ground with all of his gear on and everything. I started shaking him. And I started calling him by his name. And I just started slamming him into the wall, trying to snap him out of it. And when he did, one of the training staff came up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder and kind of turned me around. And as soon as he did, I slapped him right across his face piece. And then pushed him into a wall. And then I told the, the state instructor, we were on, I think, the third or fourth floor. I said, if you say a fucking word to me, you're going out that window head first. I mean, this is the level it got to with me. And um, I can't begin to tell you how much I was drinking. It was pitiful. It was, uh, I was showing up to work drunk. And back then, uh, I think my captain knew. We never talked about it. But my captain was on the body recovery team with me. He was actually on my team. And when I would come in, he'd let me try to sleep it off. And um, I know he didn't want to get me in trouble. Um, but honestly, looking back, he I wish he would have said something because I needed help. And I didn't know where to get it or I was too proud to go get it. I mean, I knew where to go, but I was way too proud. 
and too tough. And I was like, this is what we do. We deal with it. But if you look at the way I was dealing with it, man, I was hurting people around me. Now I'm showing up drunk and I'm, I'm driving the ladder truck on the west side, uh, ladder five. And I'm driving it intoxicated in the mornings until that, until that alcohol would wear off. And heaven forbid I were to drive that truck. And I remember one time we were going to a call downtown and we had to, we had to cross the Ashley River Bridge going into downtown. And I just remember thinking about what if I just took this truck right off the Ashley River Bridge? My whole crew would be in there with me and we'd be at the bottom of the Ashley River. And I now wonder, I wonder if these, I wonder if these air packs, if we could get them on in time to breathe a little bit of air, just to, just to give us enough air to get out of this thing. I remember thinking that, and dude, that's not a good place to be in. You don't need to be doing that shit. Um, there was another incident when I was, uh, I was detailed over to engine 16 and we had a brand new guy and, uh, I nicknamed him sweet onion. So I'm gonna keep calling him sweet onion. He's a captain there in the firehouse fire station now downtown Charleston. But, uh, this is very first fire. And, you know, I'd already been to fires that killed guys, killed my guys. I didn't want to go anymore. You know, I mean, we, I'd go if we had to, but I didn't care to be the guy. Oh man, I hope we get a fire today. I hope we get a fire today. Cause I've been to fires where we pulled babies out on Christmas. Uh, we had a Christmas Eve fire. Where we had two kids burn up. I've been to fires where, um, we, we could have saved a guy, but we had a, a mutual aid call with another department and they got a little selfish with the rescue and kind of blocked us from getting this man out of the building. And, uh, the man ended up dying. I've been to fires where, you know, elderly people are dead, but never one with my guys, you know? And so here we are on engine 16. I'm taking sweet onion to this call. And I look back, we're about I don't know, three, two miles away. We're coming over this big Don Holt bridge here. We could see smoke, man. This, this shit was, this thing was pushing. It was it's what we call a piss ripper here. And you see black smoke just filling up the sky as a, as a townhouse going. And, um, he was excited, so excited. He was, he already had his face piece on and we're two miles away from this thing. And I look back, that's all I said, get that fucking face piece off, you idiot. And he was just excited, but I was so mad that he was even there because if our new guys wouldn't have been there, if our guys wouldn't have been killed, because we did a mass hiring after that. So when we get to the fire, you would think as having a new guy, we pull up and we were actually tasked, um, I don't know, we were like sixth on the scene or something like that. So we were tasked with search and rescue. Well, you'd think I would have, you know, enough. Um, I've been in, on the job for years now. You'd think I would I would have taken care of my new guy and, and made sure he stayed up my ass going through this, this piss-ripping fire, but I didn't. As soon as I got to the front door, I disappeared, man. I left him, and I left my captain. I left everybody. And I just kind of went on my own program. And I remember I went upstairs and I'm kind of searching above the fire and I could feel that heat. And I remember not wanting to come out of that building, man. Um, I just, I wanted to die, but I didn't. I couldn't do it myself. I needed, I needed fate to take over and do it for me. Um, I remember running very low on, on air and I, I, I opened the window. It was on the alpha side. On it, and uh, as soon as I opened the window up, I stuck my head out. And this, I mean, this thing was just, it was shitting smoke out of that window. And 
I had my face piece off. I'm choking and trying to conserve air. So I took my face piece off, obviously. So I see Sweet Onion out there. <laughs> I was like, Sweet Onion, give me a fucking attic ladder, man. Um, we need to go up in the attic. So he, he throws his attic ladder up through the second story window. And I told him to meet me upstairs and he came in and apparently he got into the attic and there was an ass of fire up there and it was, it would, it'd be his ass back down that ladder. And I remember making fun of it, but uh, we started getting the air horn blast. And like I said, in, in Charleston, in Charleston, we, we weren't accustomed to evacuating. And so all of a sudden we're getting these air horn blasts and I'm like, the fuck is this? So apparently they knew something on the outside that we didn't. And, uh, I thought I wanted to stay, but I guess when it, when it comes down to that point, you know, and you end up leaving in it. So I ended up leaving and I get in the yard and in the backyard, we come out of the backside on the Charlie side and all the crews are out there waiting. I was one of the last guys out. And, uh, I, I met up with a captain there who was Lewis's old captain. And he's screaming at me. He's like, Travis, what the fuck are we doing? We don't leave fires. What the fuck are we doing? We had it lit. I mean, he was mad. He's an old school 40 year fireman. He was screaming at the top of his lungs. We had it licked. We had it licked. I mean, we weren't used to coming out of fires. And, um, but that thing was getting way out of control. And looking back, they made the right decision because I, I promise you, if we stayed in there another minute or two, we'd have lost more guys. Um, it just wasn't a, a point in being there. Um, I have more stories like that, but for time's sake, I'll just kind of get to where it really got bad for me. And um, As the drinking continued, um, I eventually would, would start going home, obviously, by myself. Now, this is months and months after fire. But when I was alone, it was dangerous, man. I was, I was so dangerous, and I was scared to be by myself because I knew the thoughts I was having. I wanted to die. I literally wanted to leave this earth, but I just couldn't do it myself. And uh, I, I kept putting fate in my own hands. And so what I would do, um, I'll tell you one night in particular where my mother to this day, she knew, you know, we talked about it not long ago. She knew, she said, when I hung up the phone with you that night, I, I had a feeling you were going to kill yourself. And I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to push you to it. This is how severe it got. So one night I got really intoxicated and I got in my car and, uh, I go, well, I'm gonna go wrap myself around a tree. And, um, cause I'd been to countless fatalities like that too. Uh, it's going back to what I was familiar with, you know? And, um, I was going down interstate 26. I had this, um, Mercury grand Marquis old four four beater. But, uh, I remember getting that thing at about 110, 115. And I'm just, I was just flying and there's nobody out. It was, it was late in the, in the middle of the night, early morning hours. And I was, I was just thinking, man, at some point I'm going to lose control. At some point I'm going to blow a tire and I'm going to, I'm going to wrap myself around the tree. And so I went I 26 westbound. I don't even know for how long and it never happened. And I got pissed off and I turned around I was like, well, fuck it. I'll go back eastbound. And before I knew it, I'm eastbound, but I'm, I'm back at my exit. And I'm drinking in my car and just trying to make it worse and hoping I'm blackout or something, but I didn't. So I go back to my house. I'm, I'm pissed off. I'm, I want to die. I, I pull up my, my weapon and I sit on the couch and I was like, all right, I'm going to shove this thing in my mouth and, and paint my walls in my brain. So I just got to do it because fate's obviously not going to do it for me. So I, I sat down and I put a, put a pistol in my mouth and I just, just 
felt it for a minute, you know, and I, I tasted the gunmetal on it. And, um, I stuck it as far back as I could and thought about where it needed to be, to the point where I was gagging on it. Um, and then I pulled it out and I took the magazine out. I took a round out of the chamber and I racked the, I racked the slide on a, with an empty weapon. But I stuck it in my mouth and I pulled the trigger just to hear it click. And uh, so I pulled it out and I re-racked it. And I wanted to find out exactly where it clicked on that trigger pull. I didn't want it to be a surprise. I wanted to know exactly when it was coming. So I clicked it again and pulled it out, re-racked it, stuck it in my mouth again. And every time I got to the same same place with the trigger pull. And after four times of doing that, I, I fucking loaded the weapon. Um, Put the magazine in and racked a, a live hollow point into the chamber and stuck it in my mouth. And I, I meant to tell you before this is when I had a conversation with my mom before all of this. And, um, but she was no longer on the phone and couldn't help me. So I knew right where that gun was going to go off. And then I racked it, stuck it in my mouth, and I started pulling the trigger. And uh, I'm going to tell you, man, it's, it gives me chills now thinking about it because I – I had some serious tension pulled on that thing and I just stopped and I stopped right where I felt like it was going to go off and I pulled it out of my mouth and I couldn't do it. Um, I don't know why. And that certainly wouldn't be the last time I thought about it, but I couldn't do it. And looking back on it, I, I honestly think it's because I have a higher calling in life and, and it is to do something better with my life my guys didn't die just so i could have some miserable life you know what i mean i need to honor them somehow so but i just i didn't know how um so as my behavior grew more reckless the drinking it just wouldn't stop um i had a we had a, a another piss ripping fire one day and we had this new new fire chief in town and nobody liked him because he was he was the complete opposite of what we did. We fought fire with no gloves on our hands, with no mask on our face, with our flash hoods down. We were cowboys. No hearing protection, no eye protection, all that shit. You know, pussies, pussies use that stuff. That's that's where I came from. Um, so we're working this fire, and uh, for whatever reason, I was told to go gain access to the garage door that was locked. So I pulled out this K-12, and I'm, I'm ripping a hole right in the side of this damn garage door smokes billowing out man it's just like a, a perfect movie scene i'm sitting here eating the smoke and you got a firefighter who's just you got sparks and shit flying you got smoke it's just beautiful and i feel this pounding on my back and i turn around and it's i'm not even gonna say it's fucking name because nobody one likes to do but especially me so <laughs> he um he's not worthy of it but he looks me in the face and says where's your ear protection your eye protection your eye protection your hearing protection your gloves is this worth losing your job over? And when he said that, I'm going to tell you, man, all I knew is how to be a fireman. Right? I, I lived it. I breathed it. I loved it. I loved being what we were. But also, I was looking back, and I was just a prideful fucking asshole. I completely see his point now, looking back. I mean, what is the point in, in hurting ourselves any more than we have to? But that's all we knew. But I was so mad that he threatened my job. My blood began to boil. And uh, I put the fucking K-12 down. I went and sat on the bumper of the truck. 
And uh, he actually told the captain, he told the captain to drive the ladder truck back. And I felt, I felt so disrespected and I had to sit in the back seat now <laughs> like a fucking puppy and uh, go back to the firehouse. And I was so pissed. I worked the rest of the shift and went home. And for two days I stood on that and I called my, I secretly started seeing a therapist at some point and uh, it was kind of known. My captain knew it, my battalion chief knew it, but everybody else, I kind of, kind of hid it from him because I was ashamed of it. So I call her because, you know, I was the guy that was always speaking out against that shit. How could I, how could I tell anyone that I'm getting help? But I didn't have any, I didn't have any choices, man, because nobody, nobody would talk about it at work. Even me and my captain, he was on the body recovery team with me. We never spoke a fucking word about it ever, ever to this day. Couldn't even talk to each other about it, man. So I called her and I told her, I said, I'm feeling like I'm going to fuck somebody up. And I'd never, I I had a level of anger about me that I could not suppress. And I was having all these horrible thoughts. And I was like, I I need to get out of here. I just don't feel like normal. I'm going to fucking hurt somebody. And I don't remember how the conversation went, but we hung up the phone and I had to go to work the next day. And so this is where my fire, fire crew came to an end. It was in March of 2010. That next day after talking to my therapist, I walk in and remember I told you we had a bunch of new guys at our, at our fire stations and um, we're on our department now because of our guys that died. And to me, they just, they didn't belong. And they certainly didn't have, because we were going through a lot of changes at this time, two years later, they certainly didn't have the respect for the job that we had. And we had a tradition about us that they wanted no part of. They were the new breed. And it's just kind of how it was. And I wanted nothing to do with them. <clears throat> so anytime, <clears throat> anytime I could let one of them know that how I felt about them, I, I usually did. And uh, I hate, I hate having to admit that because it, it wasn't right. I mean, they didn't do anything. They just, they came there to do the job and to be a part of something that same reason we all wanted to be a part of it. You know, well, who was I to shun them? But it's just, that's how affected I was by this event. So I walk into the firehouse one day and we had this beautiful monument out in front of our engine 10 ladder five um, station. And um, one of the new guys had his coffee cup sitting right on top of it, uh, of our monument. I mean, he wasn't there when our guys died. And dude, I didn't even make it into the fire station before I hit the roof. I saw that and I saw it as a blatant sign of disrespect. And, um, I grabbed that cup and I threw it on the ground and smashed it into a million pieces. I knew exactly whose it was. I walked in there, I threw the door open, and I told him, I said, if you want your fucking coffee cup, it's in a million pieces out on on the sidewalk. And I said, next time you do it, I'm going to beat your fucking ass. So again, I went straight to violence. And when I said that, did that, my my other best friend from the job, he was a smart ass, just like me. I mean, he was... um, he was a, he was a, he stirred the pot just like I did anytime we got a chance, you know. He asked me, he said, Travis, why are you being such a fucking asshole? And the second he said that, I took that as him defending our probationary firefighter and defending the level of the lack of respect that he had for our guys. 
And I told him, I said, if you say another word, I'm going to fucking kill you. And I'm, and I looked at my captain. I said, I'm leaving. I can't be here today. I'm going to fucking hurt somebody. And I turned around to my buddy and I said, I'm begging you, please don't say another word to me. Cause that's what he did. He would just, he would say shit just to piss people off. And James, and I'm telling you, I, I felt a bomb inside of me coming. I've never felt it like this before. I knew it was about to get bad. And the thing is like, when people say, well, how can these people shoot up these, these places and kill all these innocent people? I, I, um, I, I honestly feel whatever I had going on inside of me, that's how they feel. Because all I know is I turned around and he said something smart ass. I don't even remember what he said. And I fucking lost it. I exploded to the point where I was fighting everybody in my firehouse. We had 10 guys in my house. And I don't remember a thing about it. I went completely black. I just saw red and I wanted to kill people. And the only memory that I have was standing outside, breaking down, crying like a schoolgirl with my captain standing there. He's about 275 pounds of nothing but man trying to hold me still looking me in the eyes and asking me what the fuck is wrong with me. And before I knew it, another captain came out who had two in the house and he said, the cop, the police are on their way. That's how bad it got. There was no more sweeping stuff under the rug. I was used to when I got violent, hey, it's on the job. We, we just keep it in the house. There was no more of that. Thank God before the cops got there, my battalion chief, who's now passed away from cancer, as so many of our other guys have. It's, um, shit, we ended up burying 14 people that year. That's another story. Um, Chief John Wynn, he uh, he came, he 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 raced down there as soon as he found out before the cops could get there. He knew, remember what I was telling you, he knew I was getting help, and um, he begged me. He said, "Traps, you got to go to your therapist right now. They're going to take you to jail, man." He says, "Get in your car and go." So I went down to my therapist, and um, that was the last day that I had, I ever worked as a as a firefighter, professional firefighter, and. Um, It was all over for me. What do you do? You know, that's all I ever knew. That's all I wanted to be. I had just, I had just um, tested and I was getting promoted. I was on a promotion list to engineer. And before, before too long, I'd be a captain. I'll plan on staying on the job 30 years. Um, but things change, man. And, and things don't always work out the way that we want them to. And for the longest time, I was mad. I was mad as fuck, man. I was mad at my friend. For saying what he said and making all of that happen. I never once for years accepted responsibility for the way that I behaved. I never accepted the responsibility for my, my actions. I never once said, you know what, man? All of this was avoidable if you would have just set your fucking pride to the side and, and did what you needed to do, but you, you didn't do it in time. It was too late for you. So that's where I've arrived at this different point in my life, which we can talk about here in, in a few minutes. I've accepted responsibility for everything. Now, I know everything that I went through and everything that I did, everybody that I endangered, it was all my fault. I can't change what happened that caused me to go down this dark road, right? But I can change my reaction and the way that I perceive things now. And 
when I do these motivational speaks, um, talks, uh, speeches, sorry, I'm wearing these new headphones and I can't really hear myself. So, oh, no, you're um, fine. You sound fine. So when I do these motivational talks, uh, about overcoming post-traumatic stress and, uh, the dark roads that you can go down with it, I attest it to this, whatever's happened to you in your life, it is a weight for you to regardless. It's always going to be there. It's never going away. You'll never forget it. It's always going to be there and it's always going to be a weight. And I think I told you this, James, and it's, there's only two things that we can do with that weight. And this is what I figured out over a long, brutal, um, lifetime of this shit. There's only two things we can do with that weight when it's on us. You can let it weigh you down to the point where you can't even fucking get up in the mornings to the point you can't even function or you can lift that weight and become stronger and empower other people around you. And so that's what I chose to do. I lift this fucking weight every single day. It's not going anywhere, but it's going to make me stronger. And I'll just keep on lifting it because I know what it feels like to be weighed down. And that's a hell of a lot harder than it is to just keep lifting the weight. I have a story about, um, one time I, I broke a new firefighter's ball so bad. And back then I was, I was so proud of it, you know, and this is kind of a funny story and it's very, um, it's very dirty. So if you're listening to this right now and you don't want to hear a dirty story with a bunch of cursing and a, a lot of sex talk, I would recommend you can turn this off. But if I know who's listening to this, I bet you everybody's turning it up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've already leaned closer. So go on. <laughs> Hey, on. I'm actually. I'm sitting in my office, dude. I have to take my shirt off because this gets that hot. No worries. I, I just did the same not thing. Not even being funny. <laughs> so, oh, thanks for your shirt, by the way, man. That's the best shirt that I own. Oh, really? Good. They're comfortable, yeah, aren't they? The, yeah, I worked to the gym the other day, and uh, this isn't a plug or anything, but I worked to the gym the other day, and people were asking me about it. So, if you start getting some emails about it, um, there you go. Awesome. Well, for everyone listening, you can get it at jamesgearing.com. There you go. Best shirt, <laughs> best shirt I've ever put on, man. Yeah. All, right, All right, so here goes. Okay, the microphone here is goes, yours. <laughs> here goes my alpha male story of alpha male stories and the whole firefighter mentality. Well, if you can't deal with this shit, you're not going to fucking last. That old saying. Remember that one? Oh, yes. I've heard it by many a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so here I am. I'm about to be that douchebag. So I don't remember how many years on the job I was, but we had a new guy. And, uh, he was brand new to us and we're on it. I was on the engine company this day. And the only reason I tell this story is to show that mindset of when someone is emotionally bothered by something, we should stop and recognize that and talk about it. And yes, be kinder and gentler about it. And because somebody may be fucked up, man, and it may only take one call. And it could ruin somebody for the rest of their life because some people are just not wired for this shit. So we get this call one day uh, for a lady having shortness of breath. I'll never forget. She's 49-year-old female having shortness of breath. We show up several minutes after the call goes out. We're, we have to go to this, um, this house. Shit's <laughs> so funny. We grab the medical kit and we run to the front door and uh, we're banging on the front door, banging on the front door. And I'm first in line. And when the door opens, this uh, this man, he 
flings the door open and goes quick with it with this like I don't know if it was like a South African or accent or something. He's a white man and he had this very ethnic accent. She's <laughs> so funny. Quick, she's in here, right? And I couldn't help but to look down. And I'm looking down at this hard dick. He's butt-ass naked, and he's got a massive boner. And I look back at my guys, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So we start <laughs> creeping down the hallway. He turns, and he's asshole to elbows down this hallway. All you can see is his old ass and his elbows. I mean, he's gone. And we're moving with caution, man, because cops hadn't come and cleared the scene. We don't know what's going on. <laughs> so this thing is getting weird. And as we're walking down the hallway, I hear... I hear some serious moaning going on. Like, I mean, somebody is getting it taken to them. And the closer we get, the louder it gets. And it's just, oh, oh, it's just so nasty. And as I round the corner where he, the room he went into, there's this huge big screen television with this porno going with full blast. I mean, they're in a full on fuck scene. And the volume is so high, we can barely hear ourselves. And, I look over on the bed, lays this beautiful, unconscious woman. I already said she's 49, and I'm going to tell you, this 49 is probably the best-looking 49-year-old woman I've ever seen in my life. She is laid out, <laughs> not breathing. We check signs, ABCs, all that. She's completely naked. And so I look at my new guy, and I go, I'm grab her legs. You grab her upper torso. Let's get her on the floor. So we can start CPR. So as we're putting her on the floor, we're literally kicking dildos, plural, out of the way. They're all over the floor. I don't know what was going on in this house. There's dildos <laughs> everywhere. And so we're having to move them out of the way so we can get a good solid surface to put her on. And my new guy, he takes a, uh, a bag valve mask. He starts bagging. And I start compressions. And uh, do you know how it feels like when somebody's standing whether you're you don't understand when somebody's standing over you, you know, you know that you can feel that presence. All right. So as I'm doing CPR, I feel this presence and I'm looking straight ahead. I'm listening to this porno. I'm like, what in the fuck is going on up in here? And I, I'm doing compressions I'm doing compressions. And, and it's just like, whatever's behind me just doesn't feel right. So I look over my right shoulder and I swear, James, the dick is almost hit me in the mouth. <laughs> the guy, the guy is standing right over my shoulder, and I, I remember leaning away, and I told my captain, I go, Cat, get him out of here. So my captain, I think he was in awe of what was going on, too. So he pulls the guy over, and I hear him, <laughs> I hear him go. Captain's just trying to keep him preoccupied. So he goes, sir, what were you doing at the time? You know she couldn't breathe. And the guy got mad. He goes, God damn it, we was fucking <laughs> and I remember spinning across the room. I couldn't hold it, man. And I was fucking dying. And my new guy is looking at me because he's never been to a, a dead person. And he's looking at me like, what is going on? Well, the cops end up coming. EMS comes. We get her loaded up. Um, she didn't make it. We tried our best, man. We really do. But she uh, she didn't make it. And we get out of the firehouse. And I could tell our new guy's upset. And me and the captain, we were joking about, you know, how gorgeous this woman looked. And we, I mean, we had some pretty, pretty foul things to say. 
But that's how you deal with it, man. And we always hear that that old excuse, hey, we're fucked up because that's how we deal with it. And, it. and it is true. But that's when our new guy butted in. He goes, I can't believe you guys are talking like this about this woman. That's somebody's daughter. And that's somebody's um, loved one. And I remember looking him dead in the face. And I said, let me tell you something, dude. If you can't make fun of this shit, you're not going to last on this job. And you might as well go ahead and pack your shit and leave. And I'm proud to say 15, 16 years later, he's still on the job, but uh, he converted over to the police department and I got a call out of the blue the other day and guess who's having trouble. Oh, really? He's having trouble now. We talked about that call, but he stayed on the job and he got used to seeing the fucked up things. And guess what? Now the fucked up things have all gotten to him. And he's in law enforcement. And you know what he told him? Travis, I, I got a few more years till I retire. And he goes, I can't tell anybody this shit. He goes, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. And what will I have then? And that's what I'm getting back to, man. It's People are afraid to talk about this stuff. Out of fear of retribution or, oh, his mind's not stable. Well, you know what I realized? in law enforcement too, because, I mean, they'll take their weapon yeah. from him. Exactly. Well, you know what I realized, James, over the years? You know, you look at these SWAT team guys, right? They're all, they're big and they're buff and they're in shape and all this. That's great because they've been training their bodies, right, for the inevitable. What's wrong with training our minds? What's wrong if our mind gets hurt? Why are we all of a sudden not able to do the job if our mind gets hurt and we go see somebody and get it worked on a little bit and now we can come back to the job with a clear, clear conscience and a better understanding of ourselves? You break your leg on the job. You're welcome back with open arms. You go heal, you come back, you can go to work. But why is it when that happens with our mind, we're just automatically thrown out like trash, man? Yeah. Now, we've talked about this lots and lots and lots of times on this show, and, and everyone concurs, and that's the thing. No one's going to disagree with that. We're all like, what the fuck? And, and part of it, for me, goes back to, you know, to me, almost our grandparents' generation now, certainly our parents' generation, where... When you go far enough back to the greatest generation, you know, that we talk about, World War II, those men and women did incredible things. And even though they don't seem to talk about it that much, when they do, you know, the, the, I mean, I always refer to the Band of Brothers when, when the original guys are talking. I know I've, I've talked about this scene over and over again, but there's no better illustration. 60 plus years later, the real members of the uh, 101st recalling their stories are all in tears. That's because that's what's going to happen when you do and see this horrible shit. And then we've got these generations after that are portraying these superficial bullshit versions of masculinity, which is then carried over into the military, the police, the fire, EMS, coroners, wherever people work, that send this message of, oh, boys don't cry, you know, don't be a pussy, rub some dirt in it. And I'm like, well, go back to the real fucking heroes of our, you know, a few generations ago. None of them are saying that. Where the fuck did this come from? And that's what we're dealing with now is trying to undo the damage of this facade. I think almost like Hollywood facade of what, how we're supposed to feel. And it's so detached from how humans are actually going to feel. You're right. And I was an advocate for sucking it up. That's all I've known growing up my whole life and all the jobs I've had. Suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. Deal with it. If you can't fucking deal with it, pack your shit. Get the fuck out of here. We need men here, right? And now I'm the complete opposite. As I've gotten older and I don't understand where I've been, where I've come from to where I am now. Hey, dude, 
it's okay. Have some feelings. Cry. I'm not saying you got to just stand out on the curb and cry and sell fucking lemonade and tea and flowers. But if you got to talk with somebody, fucking do it. And I'm a huge advocate for that now um, because I know where not talking about it can get you. And I think if someone on a team is is getting help with their mind, they're going to be a lot stronger than the guys lifting the weights most of the time. You know, I would rather have a dude getting his head worked on that on a SWAT call out that when you know when you stack up on a door and he's a point man, he may have been fucked up, but he's been getting help for it. He may be laser focused more so than the guy behind him who's been burying it like me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's there's proof that you are more resilient when you work through trauma. That's a known scientific thing. So I'm going to get into what, what really pulled me out of the depths. And uh, so I don't know if a lot of your listeners um, know this or not. I don't know if you're going to talk about it in the beginning or however you say. But I've Before you do, before you do, I yeah. want to interrupt for a second. Please yeah. tell me when you were in that room with that porn playing full blast that you keyed the mic to speak to dispatch as much as you possibly could. Because <laughs> I oh, would my have, open mic, my bad. <laughs> yeah. I wish, I mean, I wish I had the wherewithal to do that. Um, <laughs> but we were so focused on doing compressions. And, and, and honestly, I was focused on those, you know, mine. No, I didn't, but that would, that would have been funny. That would have been. But, and then just before you start, the, the next thing as well, what I want to point out is I can tell you absolutely through most of my career, when someone was on edge, seemed like they were having a bad day, that's whenever you know, we'd smell blood and they'd start, you know, pushing people's buttons. And I look back now, and I, you know, I wasn't, a, you know, a, a a bully or a mean spirited person. I wasn't the one that would shame. But all of us can think about back in the day, what the fuck's your problem, you know? And then you start pushing. And now, knowing what I know, the last five years or so, I look back and I'm like, fuck. That's when you need to take them aside and go, what's going on? Because in hindsight, I know now that person was going through a divorce, that person's kid was sick, you know, all these other elements, or they're just, that was the day where it just all stacked up. But for all of us that, you know, like you said, we joke in the firehouse and it's so, so important for us dealing with this stuff. We also need to take a step back. And if someone is truly being triggered by what we're saying, that's a glaring red flag that something is wrong over and above them having a quote unquote bad day. Yeah, so I was uh, I was more of like a big brother slash bully. It's not something I'm proud of, but if I smelled blood in the water, I was all over it, and I would rub your face in it until you couldn't take it. I remember there would be times at my firehouse that guys would they would check out sick just because they couldn't take working with me anymore because I would just ride them so hard. It's not something I'm proud of. Looking back on it, I used to love to have a lot of fun on the job, even when I was fucked up. Right, I still busted balls and had fun and laughs now the majority of the time everybody we had a lot of fun but there were a, a couple of people that were not wired to be able they were structured to be able to take a 24-hour shift with me they just there wasn't a lot of, there were very, there were a few guys that just could not handle it and looking back i feel bad for that but what can you do and now if i were on the job now i'd be more of a father figure like hey look learn from my mistakes kind of thing and i i've been there and i would you know, probably take care of people a little bit better. But back then I was, I was injured too, man. And I was, I was acting out to, to hide what I was going through. I, I just saw something about, um, 
um, I watched the Aaron Hernandez story and they were talking about homosexuals in football and how there's a lot of homosexuals in football because it's the manly sport and that's the best place for them to hide. I watched it too. It was amazing. So essentially with me, and when I thought about that, it hit a nerve. I go, man, all I was doing was hiding by fucking with everybody all the time. I was hiding how fucked up I was. And I was trying to act like I was tougher than what I really was. And I wasn't, you know, and that's what happened with this. It came to a head for me. But so now where I'm at in life is, um, I like I said, I don't know if a lot of your people know, but years ago I started doing stand-up comedy when I was a fireman and I kind of just did it for fun. And that was my, that was my go-to, especially after the fire, because it gave me something to like, um, feel good about when I hated everything around me, comedy, being on a stage. And even if it was 10 people being on a stage made me feel whole, even if for a short time. Well, what I didn't realize is I actually got pretty good at it and I started getting paid to do comedy. And I was, before I knew it, while I was still a fireman, I was taking trips to Alaska to do private shows, man. And being flown up there, um, being paid very well to the point where I was, I would pay guys extremely well to cover my shift so I could get out of town and go do these things. Still, I never wanted to leave being a fireman. I just loved doing comedy. Like that was my grass cutting business you know how many firemen own grass cutting businesses that's what i did to make money i told jokes and it started growing exponentially i don't how do you say that word james exponentially exponentially but i have to tell you though more words have been invented on this show most of them by me than anywhere else so don't worry about it from now on that's added to the vocabulary (laughs) all right you told me how to say it don't ever ask me how to spell it so (laughs) Anyway, what happened with me was when when I was relieved from being a firefighter, fortunately, I had a I had something I could get into right away um, because comedy was I was already at the point where I was making money. And mo- most people, when they go into comedy, they, they don't make a dime for years. Well, with me being a fireman, a police officer, uh, a Marine, I had already developed fan bases around around the country from going out and traveling and people people naturally like public servants and then there's so many of us public servants out there their family members were starting to support me you know so when they told me i put me a fire and i was sad as shit man but what i did is i ran from it i literally picked up the phone i got a manager i got an agent um and we we booked my calendar 40 weeks a year and I did that for six years straight and I ran, dude. I, I, I got far from Charleston. I still lived here, but I, I just kept going. And somewhere along the line, my comedy developed into this story about my life. At first it was just dick jokes, right? Dick and, you know, dick jokes, fuck jokes and, you know, funny stuff, stuff that didn't mean anything. But now when I'm on stage, I tell a story and it's very similar to what I'm telling you about right now. Um, I talk about all the professions I had and being a family man, being a father. I used to do, used to be an alcoholic. I mean, to the point, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was, but what happened was I started picking up overseas tours for the troops. I started getting sent to Canada, down to the Bahamas, working every comedy club across this country, all the big ones in Hollywood, the big ones in New York, the big ones in between everywhere. I was literally everywhere. And it was mind blowing because I never set out to do that. I didn't want that. I didn't want 
to be anybody, somebody recognized. And I'm not trying to sit here and pretend like I'm a household name because I'm not. But I did have the opportunity to work all of these wonderful venues and do very well with it. Um, I got on TV four times. I got I produced an album that hit number seven in the top 100 comedy albums it's called Reporting for Duty. I made that in 2015. So all of these things started happening, man. And that's when I really started loving who I was becoming again. And I started thinking, you know, I could sit at home on the couch and become an alcoholic and become addicted to pills because I was so butthurt that my guys died. Or I could have actually done something with this and turned my life into something positive, which I did. And I was now performing for big fundraisers, helping firefighters, helping police officers, helping paramedics, helping military people, helping injured people in those lines. And I was doing it. And it felt great, man. I, I, I get to go to FDIC, which is the largest firefighters convention in the world, 30-something thousand firefighters in this thing. I'm going back this year in 2020, April 21st. I have a big show um, for the Firefighter Cancer Support Network where all the proceeds go to help firefighters that have cancer in their families. You know what I mean? And I can't tell you what a great feeling that is. It's just like you were saying when you do your your podcast, you're, you're still helping people, although you may not be on the job anymore. That's how I feel. I, I took what I have, this, this ability that I have to be able to entertain and I've turned it into something that can still help people and help myself. It essentially became a medicine. Well, in 2016, after I had my best year, um, things were really going well for me. I, um, I had meetings with um, production companies about having a sitcom, um, and they were those went pretty well. And the problem was that by that time I was married and I had two kids, and me being gone 40 weeks a year, Oh, by the, by the way, I quit drinking and I haven't drank in seven years now, but I was still on the road for four years and I didn't drink one drop on the road for four years when you're surrounded by it. And my life improved 100 times, 100% better for the better. Um, it was amazing at the turnaround my life took when I decided to quit drinking. So with everything going great for me in 2016, my family life was suffering and I literally was not a good husband. I was not a good father because I was gone. And my wife was a teacher. She was married, but she was essentially a single mom, two kids, working full time with a husband who's never home. Um, so we had to have a conversation. And when my second daughter was born, I decided to pull the plug on comedy for good. And because you can't, you can't just half-ass comedy. You're either all in or you're not. Uh, it, it is a very demanding thing. It requires you being on stage as much as possible. And you have to be in people's faces. So what I did, I immediately got my real estate license because I was always interested in real estate. And I grew up you know, working on things and you know, I knew how to fix up houses and stuff. So I get my real estate license and I start buying houses for myself here in Charleston and flipping them. And uh, I was doing it for three years and as time was going by, the more I would do, it's, hey, you make you make good money, but, man, my heart was empty as fuck. I started going back down that old path that I'd been down so many years before. And I slowly started sinking into this dark abyss, and uh, 
it was really affecting everything at home. And I was on edge all the time. I was mean. I was, I was good to my kids, but I was very quick to like, if they got a little bit loud, snap my fingers or to yell for them to stay quiet. And I started becoming very irritable again. And, um, very short with my wife. Um, so emotionally we just grew apart. I mean, we grew so far apart. Like we were just two people raising kids and I was hating the man that I was becoming. I felt empty. I, um, I felt like I, I had this purpose in life. Once I finally accepted what had happened to me, found this new path. I was hell bent on, making something of myself so at least my guys and looking down on me could could be proud of me you know what i mean um and then i just quit and part of what ptsd is there's a lot of self-destructive moments in your behavior and i think part of me quitting was that i was achieving a certain level of success that i didn't feel like i even deserved how how did i deserve this and my out was my family well, I need to be around more for them, which is true. But I could have found a better balance. I could have figured out a way to manage it. But in 2016, my, my 2017 calendar was completely full and I wasn't accepting any more dates. I had 40, 42, I think, weeks on the books. Big dates. And um, I canceled all of them. So that always left this big void inside of me. And I always had this what if for three years, man. What if, what if, what if. Well, it got to a point that it got so bad for me that um, I don't want to live anymore. Here we go again. You know, I had something I loved, and I'd, I'd gotten so far away from all that hurt. So I thought, and that's back on me, man. It, it's on me just like it, as heavy as it was before. I couldn't do anything right no matter what I did. I felt like I was a monster in my house. You know, if I'm, I'm providing for my family every way I can and I felt like it wasn't enough. You know, the stress of the bills, the stress of the, the strained relationships, stress of my kids screaming, that one thing I couldn't handle. The stress of going out and flipping these houses and doing the actual hard contracting work 10 to 12 to 14 hours a day, holding those deals together when you got all your money invested in them and they're falling apart. On top of feeling guilty for being alive, you know, on top of what ifs, you know, doubting yourself. I just started hating myself again, man. And so sometime last year, I, I decided I don't want to live anymore. And I found my old familiar friend, that pistol, and I drove out to the Francis Marion National Forest. That's why I tell you, man, I tell guys, this stuff's never behind you. If you're not moving forward, it's going to catch you. You don't have to run from it. You just got to know it's there. You've got to find a way to attach yourself to something that makes you happy. Attach yourself to something that doesn't make you want to look back. That's something for me was comedy. And then when I took it from myself, I didn't want to live anymore. So I was, um, I drove out, it was a rainy day and I, I thought about blowing my brains out in my shower here at home. But then I thought how oh, that would mess my kids up. And I don't want my wife to come in and see that because she's 
in my eyes, has lived in a bubble her entire life and been very protected from the evil that's in the world. And that's good. And, you know, I used to make fun of her for that, but I wish, I wish I lived in that bubble and I wish I were oblivious to just how evil some, some things can be out there, but I don't have that luxury. And I don't want to fuck her up like that, you know? So I was like, I'll just go out in my truck and whoever will find me will, will see me and will fuck them up. But my wife will never have to see me. My kids will never have to see me. So it was rainy and I drove out to the Frank Samaria and I drove so deep in that damn, damn forest that um, my GPS quit working, my phone signal quit working. So I pulled over, I rolled my windows down. I was smelling that fresh air and letting his raindrops hit my arm. I had my pistol in my lap and I'm looking down this dirt road. It had these huge mud puddles. And, uh, you know, when everything gets more green when the rain hits it. I was mesmerized at how pretty that dirt road was with those green trees and those dirty-ass mud puddles. And I'm just sitting there thinking about how I got to this point in life. And I didn't, I didn't know how it, could, how it could get back to where I was. And while I was thinking about that, um, and I'm, I'm out there all by myself, all of a sudden I see two fucking headlights come around the curve. And I remember thinking, dude, I'm trying to be out here by myself. You're fucking this up for me. And all of a sudden I see another set of headlights and another set of headlights. Well, it was these three big trucks. They were coming back there. They were mud and they were running through these mud puddles. They were just having a good time. And they would hit the puddles and I remember smiling and for, for a second I had a, 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 like a little glimpse of joy just when I didn't think I had joy anymore I felt it by these trucks hitting the mud puddles because they were having fun and it made me smile as I'm sitting in my truck trying to think about ending my life and they all drove by me one by one very slowly and, and I can still see their faces. They were just looking over at me like, what the fuck is this guy doing? His windows are down. He's just sitting here. It's pouring rain, you know? And I remember looking in my rear view mirror and my side mirrors as they drove off. And I thought about it. I was like, I felt that little piece of joy and I, there's still some out there for me. And then I, I said, I got to get back to doing what I love, man. And this is, this is going to be the outcome. And again, I, I couldn't do it. I threw my, glo- my, my gun in the center console and I was on a mission. I said, I'm going to be happy. And then that's how this, that, that's how this thing gets, man. It's, um, it'll get on your back. And just when you think all, all hope is lost, something will make you smile. And, you hear people say, well, it takes a coward to, to kill themselves and all this, and it's very selfish. And honestly, I can, I believe the complete opposite. Um, people that don't understand why people kill themselves could certainly think that way. But when you carry a weight that's so heavy, imagine carrying, let me give you a 45 pound weight today and saying, James, carry this for the rest of your life and you can never set it down. And everything you have to do, you need to do with that on your back, everything. And then all the other stuff you got to put on top of it too. Dude, it just, you reach a point where it's just too fucking heavy and you feel like such a burden to everybody around you and you feel like you're making 
your children's life worse. You know it's you are in a horrible place when you think your children are better off without you than with you. And that was the reasoning behind why I was going to do what I wanted to do. But that little smile that I was able to flash to myself, see in those trucks hit those mud puddles, changed it for me. And it made me think about comedy. And I came back to the house. I didn't say a word to anybody. I just started thinking about it again. And I was like, if I, if I were to get back into this, how, how do I do it? I pissed a lot of people off when I quit because <laughs> I canceled a lot of work. I fired an agent, fired a manager. I don't have them anymore. But I did have some really good relationships that I'd made along the way with some really, um, really wonderful people. And so a few months went by, man, and I, I started thinking about it. And one day, out of the blue, literally out of the blue, I get a call asking me to do the firefighter FDIC conference again in 2020. And without without even hesitating, I took it. And then my wife was sleeping, and I walked in here, woke her up. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And I said, hey, I'm letting you know I'm going back into comedy. And I remember being so juiced, I felt so alive again. And that was oh, fuck, months and months and months ago. And ever since that night, I picked up the phone. I started mending relationships, and I started getting back out there doing stand-up. And I have not stopped. And it is, it is picking up to the point like it used to be. I'm not back to doing the amount of shows that I did, but I'm back doing some really, really good ones. And I've even started writing a book and I'm about three quarters of the way done with the book. And it's about all this stuff we've been talking about, plus about 90% more. This is just the scratching the surface of everything. Um, and the book is, I think it's, if anything, it's just, it's been very therapeutic for me to write it. It's been um, nice to be able to see how far I've actually come and how far away from everything I've gotten. And the, the God's honest truth is you have to do this by yourself and on your own. Nobody's going to come to your door and pick you up and make it all better. And I think that's what I was waiting for all those, all those times. I was hoping that it would just go away. I was hoping something would happen to make my life better. And if you don't specifically yourself, if you don't get up every single day, to try to make yourself better. You're just never going to, it's never going to get better. And that's what I realized. So this time around, I'm not quitting comedy. I'm not quitting being in front of people. I'm actually doing speeches now about this stuff. So we can get the word out. I'm not too proud to stand in front of a room full of strangers. And if I have to start crying, you know, I'm not going to apologize for that. If it hits me that way. Whereas years ago, oh look at this fucking guy. That's what I'm going to do with my life moving forward. And um, I'm at peace with that now. <clears throat> and I just know that there's an alternative to eating a bullet. And that's why I was telling you earlier, I think that there was a, a greater purpose for me in life. Maybe my purpose wasn't to be a fireman. I, I wanted it to be, but that wasn't my decision to make. You know, just like being um, having to leave the police department wasn't my decision to make. It was made for me and my life was redirected and my life has been redirected several different times in a massive way. And I'm not going to fight it anymore. I'm just going to roll with the universe and see where it goes. And hopefully we can do some good with it. 
Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to two things that you said. The first thing, which, you know, I was about to ask you, and then you, you said exactly the answer to my question. So I just want to underline it now is so many people have had on here that have found themselves in the same place as you have all said the same thing. People say only a fucking coward would take their own life. And the reality is the mind is so distorted that these individuals truly in their heart of hearts feel like they are such a burden to their family that they would be better off without them. So it's a selfless act, not a selfish act. Now, thank God they didn't go through with it because they're wrong. It's a distorted perspective. But at that moment, that's a, such a misunderstood understood thing is that it's a selfish act. And I couldn't you know, disagree with that more. Yeah, and it took me, I used to think the same thing years ago. And, but once this weight gets so heavy and you really are sitting there crying because you know, without a doubt, you're about to end your life this beautiful life, this thing that's given to us and, and we can do any fucking thing we want with it. That's the crazy part. The, the world is our oyster. Seriously. I'm not trying to sound <clears throat> like all cliche, but it, it literally is man. And I still have bad days. We all have bad days, but you can't let one bad day define your life. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do now is, I had, a, I had a bad day yesterday. I had about a bad 20 minutes. And I thought about it. I was like, either this can fuck up the rest of my day if I let it, or I can have a fantastic day and move on. And that's what I chose to do. It's all perspective, man, and how you want to deal with things. And it's unfortunately, I think what happens with people is they just give up too soon because it, it does become so heavy and they don't have anywhere to turn and they don't, they don't know how to get help. But if they can just keep hanging on at some point, you know, it's, it's going to get better. Yeah, well, I think um, as well, people people like you telling their story is really. Yeah. I mean, now this 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 podcast got almost three hundred episodes, of which probably at least half, probably more than two thirds, have people on telling a story of which is a fucking roller coaster, you know. And and there's times where some of them were literally about to kill themselves, tried and failed, you know, whatever it was. I just had Clint Malarchuk on who still has a bullet in his head from when he did shoot himself in the head. You know what I mean? But when people listen and and this true, powerful stories, not these Instagram fucking highlights that everyone sees all the time, true right. human stories, I'm hoping, well, don't forget hoping, I know, I 100% know because I've had feedback from these episodes that these are the stories where people listen and go, holy shit. A, I'm not alone. B, I'm not a giant pussy. And C, now I'm starting to understand not only why I feel these things, but that I can turn this around. I used to be so scared to even talk about all this, all these things because I had a fear of what people will think. Well, who cares what anybody thinks? You know what? Because it could help one person. That person might be sitting out there with their gun in their mouth or thinking about it because they had a bad day and they don't know how to handle it, how to which way to turn. And if my story can keep somebody from doing that for two seconds where they can go get some help, then, you know, I'll, I'll tell it all day. It is what it is. Absolutely. Well, just to um, go in the other thing that I, I was pulling up before we move on, uh, uh, the most healing thing I've seen so many people, you know, reports talk about is when there was purpose back in their life, when they were able to give back. And it seems like comedy for you, like you said, it wasn't just comedy in general, but you talked about, you know, doing shows for fundraisers, doing shows for the troops. 
And so, like, you know, as you were, you were explaining, it reframed an ability to give back. And then when you pull that away, you took away that reason to, to get up in the morning. So it, I think it's phenomenal that you're doing FDIC. I think it's amazing that you're doing it for that specific charity, which is a great, great charity. Um, and I can totally understand why that is now filling that void in, in a positive way again. Yeah, uh, I'm telling you, I've, I've had a purposeful life and I've had an empty fucking life. And and you can't beat a full cup, dude. <laughs> you got to keep your cup full and find that purpose. And I kept searching. James, it was so bad for me for three years. I kept searching for things to do. And comedy just kept always peeking at me. And it, it was always there. And I was working so hard not to go back to it that I was working myself further from it. And I mean, I was Googling dumb shit. I wanted to go hunt, um, how to be a, uh, how to kill poachers in, in, um, these national forests in Africa, <laughs> but they, they won't let Westerners have weapons. So I was like, well, I'm not going to go out there as an uh, observer and get into a gunfight with no, no weapons. So fuck that. I mean, that's how desperate I was. I wanted to go do anything just to feel normal, to have some kind of reason for waking and waking up in the morning. Um, then I felt guilty because I had these two beautiful little baby girls. And I'm like, well, this is my purpose. But no, I, I'm their father. My purpose isn't to be a father. You know, that's my job is to be a good dad, yes. But that's not my purpose for being on this earth. And I truly I've discovered my purpose. I know what it is now. So and we were talking when we first talked on the phone about you know, how things happen earlier in your life and then years later, you're like, oh shit, now I see why that happened. Some, you know, are very obvious, like comedy, you, you did comedy because it brought you great success as well and you were able to give back. But now with all that time on the stage, all that time learning how to address people, you also have this platform to tell your story, but with the, the skills to actually present it, which most people with a powerful story struggle with because we haven't <laughs> been on stage for years and years. You know how comedy prepared me for that was uh, so I couldn't imagine having to go up and be a, a speaker where you go up for an hour and speak to dead silence. Because most people, most speakers aren't interacting with an audience. They're just going up there. Comedy prepared me for that because when you tell a shit joke and everybody just stares at you, you got to get used to the uncomfortable silence. Well, now it's no big deal for me to go up in front of a room full of people and just talk for an hour without getting any kind of feedback. I'm fine with it. Because comedy, I've been through every kind of scenario you can possibly think of on those stages over the years, thousands and thousands of shows, that it's not gonna it's not gonna bother me. So I think comedy is essentially wasn't the answer it to what my life is going to be or or it's not my purpose maybe. But being on that stage is a purpose. And I think it was grooming me for a higher calling, which is to do what I want to do now is educate about mental health awareness and um, you know, depression and such. Absolutely. And like you said, to be able to do the two parallels is a is the perfect, you know, result. So that way you're not only a mental health advocate, you're yeah. Travis House, the, you know, former firefighter marine police officer who's now a comedian and also a mental health advocate. Yeah, so maybe when I get done crying on stage, I can run to another stage and tell some jokes and laugh. Yeah. Make me feel better. Rub some dirt in it, pussy. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> it. All right, well, then go into the comedy for a second. Um, who are some of your uh, you know, mentors in comedy? Who are some of your favorite comedians? So growing up, I, uh, I watched all the dirty stuff. Uh, I watched Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy and Red Fox, um, Rodney Dangerfield, all, all of those guys. But 
the funny thing is, as I got into comedy, I stopped watching comedy. I stopped listening to comedy. I don't. I still don't watch it. I don't listen to it. I do it because I don't want to accidentally accidentally start imitating somebody's style or something like that. I'm my own dude. Um, and and I just I don't I don't enjoy watching stand up for some reason. Um, so I just kind of do it on my own. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I told you, I used to love stand up. I still do love stand up, but it's just I, for me, the older I get, like you're saying, that the, there is imitation, and, and it's it's just harder to find someone that you connect with. But by far, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my entire life was this synchronistic group of comedians at the London Comedy Store one night, um, and I just it was the perfect blend. And they they not only did their sets, but they ended up doing like literally an hour of improvisation together at the end. And I how I didn't actually physically piss myself, I don't know, but I love comedy. It's it's such a great outlet if you find that comedian that you know that you truly resonate with. In my book, I actually talk about pissing myself, um, which which I did do early early on in comedy. It was one of my first shows in front of like three hundred people, and I was so nervous that I went to the bathroom to pee, and when I put it away, I guess I wasn't done, and my nerves kicked in and it opened up a little bit on me, and I had piss all over in front of my pants. <laughs> and I literally had seconds before I had to go on stage, so there was no hiding it. And what I did, I, I thought I was clever, but I held a water bottle against my leg the whole time. But it was so big you could see it. <laughs> so um, I pulled the water bottle away, and I made this stupid joke that actually worked. Uh, I said, uh, "I know y'all are looking at this wet spot, thinking I pissed myself." And I was like, "I didn't. I got into an argument with a, a midget, and she threw a drink into my face." <laughs> And dude, the crowd just lost it. And from there, I could move the water bottle. I moved around freely. Like, it was okay. I no longer had to hide it. I talk about that in my book. It's a pretty funny, funny time on stage. Yeah. Well, it's funny you talk about that that exact scenario. The number of times that I've you know gone on a call, the tones have gone off. I'm like, dude, I have to piss. So you do that kind of half piss, and then you think yes. you're holding it, and then you get on the rig, and you're like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I couldn't hold it. Because <laughs> yeah, now work. you're you know, the night call pee. Yeah, yeah, at least bunker gear can cover that if you do have an accident. So, <laughs> we, yeah, I remember guys uh, back in the old school days in Charleston. There was a story where this guy he actually he would shit on calls in fires in, in the bathrooms. He'd just find a bathroom and be like, oh, I gotta go. <laughs> like, okay so there's a guy the biggest the biggest dick i ever saw was in our quarters at engine 10 at station 10 charleston so my friend we nicknamed him isidore and he was a new guy so and i was still this was after the fire i mean i still like i say i was i was upset that the new guys were there but i still had fun with them you know i mean but at times i was a dick but i still had fun so one of my things at the fire station was always to um, test a guy to kind of see how he was sexually, see if another man made him uh, uncomfortable. Because I'm a very secure man. So what I would do is I would uh, I'd get in the shower with other dudes when they weren't looking, and I'd start washing their backs, and then they would freak out. So I was a big, <laughs> I was a big boy, so I'd just pin them against the wall, and you know, I'd tell them, you know, don't fight this, you know what this is, and just kind of – that prison mentality on them and a lot of times they just start laughing because they knew I was kidding but then sometimes they get a little squirmy and it would just make it a little more interesting so or I'd crawl into their bed in the middle of the night butt naked and just tell them hey shh be quiet everybody's sleeping they can't hear let's just go with it you know I saw the way you looked at me kind of thing and just, I mean I loved messing with people 
my buddy Ryan tells a story about my first, his first day walking in our station and I walked in there and I was wearing some G strings with a, uh, with an elephant in the front of them. <laughs> but anyway, so this story about Isidore, we, we had a fire one day and, uh, Isidore, I'd, I was trying to get to this guy. Like I couldn't, I could never catch him. I was always doing something and, and I just couldn't, but, but it worked out one night after a fire. Everybody came back. It was, I think it was during the middle of dinner because for some reason, most of the crew was at the dinner table, but Isidore went in the back to shower and I knew this was my time. So I waited, I ran and jumped in the shower with him or when I pulled the, when I pulled the shower curtain open, he was actually facing me and James, when I pulled that shower curtain over, it was like a, a spotlight shined on this thing. <laughs> It's like I'd never seen he was so he was a mixed kid. He was half black, half white, but his dick was purple. And it was like it wasn't getting oxygen. You know what I mean? Like some of these <laughs> lips when you're doing CPR, they start turning blue. Like this thing wasn't real. And I think they call it don't they call that hycoxia? Yeah, I don't know, dude. Whatever it's <laughs> called. I was I was in awe. And so I I remember like a kid running back with nothing but excitement running back to the day room and um, saying, you guys got to see Isidore's dick. You got to see it. And they were like, well, where is it? They're all excited too. You know, cause you know, firemen are. And uh, I start yelling to the back, Isidore, come show these guys your dick. And dude, he was so proud as he should have been. He walked out with his towel on and I said, open that thing up. Dude, when he opened that towel, everybody's jaw hit the floor. I mean, it was massive. Words can't describe this thing, and I mean, I think that, honestly, I think he's cursed. But whatever, um, you may end up having to cut all this out. No, it's um, staying in, just so you know. <laughs> Good, because my grandma's gonna listen to it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding; she's dead. Um, but I, I don't know. It was it's funny to me because I can still see everybody's face when we told the story. I mean, it was one of those you had to be there kind of thing, and it was. That's why when I talk to guys who are still on the job now, they're like, Travis, there's a no way you would still be employed here anyway. So you better be thank your lucky stars you, you you had to leave when you did because there's no way you'd be on the job. You'd be in jail. Like somebody would sue you for sexual harassment so fast in this job. And it's, and it's um, crazy because like I, when you were telling the story, and obviously I'm thinking, well, some people out there listening might be appalled, but you know, obviously we've basically got about the same – we started around the same time in the fire service. Yeah. Um you know, I I can think of station one. This wasn't even deliberately funny, but our station one shower was communal. So you're standing you know, next to a bunch of naked dudes anyway. And then where we where the sit down toilets were, there was not enough room to put a door on. So they were just open front stalls. And there were two of the the the, the stalls where there was the silver cover for the the plumbing. And so you sat there taking a shit in one and you're basically staring into the eyes of your friend next to you who's also having a shit. You know, so that p- to put it into context, what goes on it in the firehouse? Community, it man. is, but it, you know, we, we, we are so close anyway that that sounds appalling now. And, you know, again, I, I hate the whole PC side where it's gone too far. Of course, hazing is hazing. My last apartment, apparently, they used to hold people down and stick pen lights up their ass. That's taking it too it. far. You know what I mean? Oh, but no, that sounds like a good time to me. <laughs> Can you go to bigger <laughs> pen light? <laughs> yeah. Can you do a mag light? We had a guy, he had a, he had a heart attack because what the guys did a, uh, what they did is they, they held him down and tied him down to the bed. And this is years and years ago. And what happened, they, they walked in and they had all the lights off with candles on. And the guy's screaming, get me out of here. 
they fire up a chainsaw and they walk in there with it running. And you can hear this thing run, and then they shut it off. And one of them goes, shit, ran out of gas. So he acted like he walked out to go fill it back up. Well, they had another chainsaw outside the door, but they, they pulled the chain off of it. Now, remember, it's dark. Well, they fire it up and walk in there. So this guy that's tied down still thinks, hey, this is a real chainsaw. And they start running it. Well, they lay it on his chest, and the guy had a fucking heart attack. Oh, shit. <laughs> yes. And it was a big, big thing. And this was before I was there, several years before I was there. But it, it was a very big story. So people don't understand when you come from, this is the kind of place we come from. That's why we are the way we are. Yeah. And yeah. so people are so quick to think, oh, this guy's an asshole. It's like, no, I'm not an asshole. It's just like, I'm just a very thick skinned kind of tough dude because you had to be that way. Look, when I killed a guy after a call, it wasn't 10 minutes after me being in a fire station. They're calling me to cardiac kid. You know what I mean? Like, what you going to do? That yeah. is. Yeah. And then the thing is it's about intention. I have I have talks all the time with my little boy about, you know, for example, cursing. You know, and there's this big thing like, oh, you can't especially especially here, like, you know, you can't even say ass. That means you're bum, you freaking gluteus maximus for Christ's sake. And I tell him it's about it's about what's behind it. You can be a cruel piece of shit and never use a single swear word. Or you can drop, you know, the F-bomb by a mistake as you stub your toe, and there's no cruel intention behind it. And that's the problem with this hazing, you know, is if you're just having fun, if if the rookie, you know, is being mouthy and you taped into a backboard and dumped a bunch of ketchup on it, that's not coming from a cruel place. It's like, hey, we're a band of brothers and sisters. You know, there's a code of ethics. You, you can't just go chirping off. You know, this is, this is a, a, a teaching moment, you know. There's a big difference between that and hanging a noose on a black guy's locker you know what i mean that there's there's, right. there's the normal hazing and then there's unacceptable behavior and the problem is that line in the middle has been blurred where now or actually it's been pushed all the way to the other side where you can't say anything without getting in trouble and you're taking away one of the very positive coping mechanisms in a firehouse which is laughter and community but you have to understand that there is a line if you cross it now you know you're, you're in an area that is going to threaten your job but sadly the pendulum swung so far the other way that people are terrified to do anything. So they're not joking around like they used to. And that was such a healthy, healthy thing. I remember in station one in Anaheim, we had this pin board. God forbid you did something on a call because when you came back, the entire Google of whatever the fuck you did would be now there. Your face would be photoshopped and everything, <laughs> everything yeah. that was on there. But it was hilarious, you know, and now that would be. Uh, was it you know workplace harassment and and everyone would get fucking right. fired well it used to be a way of life and now from the guys i talk to now i've been off the job 10 years it's becoming more of a corporate mindset kind of thing and they can still have fun to an extent i guess but nothing like it used to be and grant now we're those old guys you know oh back when i was on the job whatever but i'm with you man i think hey you can put a guy down to a backboard put a towel over his face, invert him a little bit, pour some water on his face. And, oh, you waterboard him. But did he die? That's kind of where I come from. <laughs> he didn't die. He's fine. You know, whatever. But, yeah. No, I, I used to love that. Like some of the, the firehouse. I remember at Hialeah, my first apartment, right when we got off probation, they lined us up in front of the bay doors, take a picture, and the next thing there was flour yeah. and water and, you know. Yeah, flour, water thing. Yeah, yeah. but that's freaking yeah. funny. And that's a rite of passage. And, and, you know, like they say in the fire service, if no one's making fun of you, they probably don't like you. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what I was growing up in. No one was mean. No one was cruel. Everyone knew who the real dickheads were, and they normally didn't even join in the fun stuff. 
But, you know, if you get your shirt rip, ripped off you after your first fire, that's because it's tradition and it's what they do. Orange County, you know, that's the thing of pride. You should, you know, hang your your torn shirt in your locker for the rest of your life. Remember the first time you got to chase the dragon, as it were. Mm, that's it. So, but now we're just old men. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, we're doing doing things with it, though. You know what I mean? That that was where the era that we grew up in, and and I hope that we can kind of swing that pendulum back so that there isn't that hypersensitivity because I I think that that was a very healthy coping mechanism and that created an environment where you could, you know, reach out to the the people that you need to talk to. If you shut down all communication because of fear of you know lawsuits then you're doing the polar opposite of what you need to do in an environment where men and women see horrific shit every day yeah you're right i'm actually in two days i have to talk to a group of uh, clinicians who are already counselors for emergency services here in in the charleston area and i'm just going to kind of explain to them how they come into play and how they're so beneficial to us back as whereas back in the day you know they were like they were it was a hex you know i don't talk to those people they're crazy but um, I'm actually talking to them kind of about the level of exposure I went to and, you know, they can rest assured that they may have to talk to people like me one day who are uncomfortable with talking to them. And, um, I just think it's, it's, it's nice to see how this whole thing's come in full circle now. You know, you have to go through, through a lot of shit, a lot of hell to get to a place of comfort sometimes. Uh, it's just an unfortunate part of it, but in, in the end, it, you know that old saying, "What doesn't kill us makes us stronger." I know that sounds silly, but I, I'm a true believer in it. You know, it's. Um, I just kind of I want to spend the rest of my days, however number they are, doing good things and making, making them productive. So, um, so I'm I'm glad I got linked up with you, um, and anybody that's that's listening, I uh, you can feel free. This isn't a shameless plug. This is uh, just genuine. Um, message is you know if you want to find me reach out to me i'm on social media all over the place uh, my website's down because i'm rebuilding it right now but i'm not i'm not a hard guy to find you know on uh, instagram and facebook so brilliant well i want to talk about the book and just get, do some quick closing questions so we can let you go sure. what is your book going to be called so as of now it's called create your own light or create your light i just i haven't figured out how you know small or long i want to be and what that what that pretty much dwindles down to is I was in the darkest place of my life multiple times. And what I realized is I'm the only person that's going to shine a light in there. Nobody's coming for me. Nobody's going to, you know, throw me a rope. Hey, come on, we're going to pull you out and pull you to this wonderful place. No, it's dark in there and it gets, it gets dark and it gets lonely. And you got to find a way to, to create any kind of happiness in your life that you're going to have is your responsibility. And nobody else's. And as soon as you can accept that and understand that, I think you can kind of see things turn around and start changing. If you want to be pissed at the world, you're going to be pissed at the world. If you want to be sit there and have that fucking why me mentality, why me, why me, why me? Because trust me, I've been there. I've done it. You're never going to find the answers to that why me. So stop fucking asking and just do something. Love it. All right. Well, then speaking of books, is there a book that you love to recommend to people? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but I've read five books in my whole life. One of them was a book on steroids with Jose Canseco read, wrote. The other one was Donnie Brasco. And uh, the other three were all mafia books. 
So I don't recommend any of those. Oh, you don't <laughs> recommend? <laughs> okay. No, no, no. no. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not a reader, man. I'm I'm too ADD, and that's that's been the hard thing about writing. I'll, I'll sit down and write for an hour, and I'll start thinking about cookies. I'll start thinking about dancing, doing something stupid. Then I can't write anymore, so I got to stop. This was taking me so long. Yeah, but you, I'll get, you I'll and get me this both finished. I'll get it finished. Yeah, it's that squirrel brain. That's it. That's All right, exactly right. So then, instead of a book, what about movies? Your favorite favorite movies? Um, just movies in general. Yeah, movies in general. And then I'll ask so, you about documentaries as well. So one of my favorite movies is Harlem Nights because obviously I was an Eddie Murphy fan and Richard Pryor fan. Uh, Coming to America. Stuff like that. I like anything old. Uh, I love old Clint Eastwood Western movies. Um, I'm I'm not an exciting person when it comes to uh, movies and entertainment like that. I don't I don't have anything that's really oh yes a must see. You know. Yeah. Well, they're all good films, though. I mean, coming to yeah, America, I can relate to that. <laughs> all right. Um, what about a documentary? I love World War II documentaries, Vietnam documentaries. I love uh, the Afghan, Afghanistan, Iraq documentaries. Anything that's military oriented. I love all the nat- National Geographic kind of stuff like that um, about the Earth. Anything I, I like, I like that stuff. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm watching the Ken Burns Vietnam one at the moment. It's incredible. Oh, so I just have you watched? He has one that's called The West, also, and it kind of talks about. Um, when you know how how we settled the west oh it is amazing okay i'll put that on for next then i'm, I'm loving it so well made you know with the, with the um uh the um the hernandez story uh is that I got his name right yeah aaron, aaron hernandez. hernandez yeah well, i watched that yesterday with becky um and the the quality of documentaries the 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 cleverness of the storytelling now i mean it's it's there's no better time, I think, to be a documentary fan at the moment because they're making them so damn well. Isn't it crazy? You can hear his phone calls from prison and uh, how just how upbeat and positive he was during the whole thing. It's, it's, it was eerie, you yeah. Know, knowing that he did all these things and he's just kind of like a different person. And then when they did the studies on his brain, just at the level of um, injuries he has sustained. So it's just it's amazing, man. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, there's that one gentleman. He was also NFL veteran, and he's talking about, you know, do I accept that as an excuse? He's like, absolutely not. And the problem is that we people love to just pick a thing. Oh, this wasn't the reason. Yeah, well, that maybe, and I get it. It's ownership, regardless. Everyone else is dealing with this and not being a murderer. But what if you took, you know, a traumatic childhood, uh, you know, a bigoted father, um, closet homosexuality, and TBI? And then couple them together, and then some bad choices as far as people you're hanging out with. Then you know what's the recipe, you know. And that's the thing is, if you can take away as many of these elements as possible, are you going to sway people away from from this kind of violence or suicide or addiction or whatever else? So you, there's never ever one thing. That's the point, you know. It's it's a combination of all these, and it was the perfect storm for him that took what was probably an innocent kid and just took him down this bizarre path where his morals were basically fucking gone by the time he was at that point. You're exactly right. And I'm not condoning it by any means, but if you look in my case, all the different variables, right. That not to mention concussions that I've had from football over the years, because we used to play with bullshit helmets they gave us, but um, getting knocked around. 
But if you take all of that into consideration, if I just went out and did something horrible, I'd be considered a monster. And that's all people would see. And you're right, there is no excuse for it. But as we as we get smarter moving forward and we know about all of these things and how they affect our brains, you know, if we don't do anything about it to heal them, to treat them, and then somebody goes out and does something like that, I mean, then all of a sudden they're a monster, you know? I mean, I had all these signs of everything going on with me and I exploded at work and that's pretty much that's how I was portrayed. Yeah, well, I can tell you, I... I, I had a, an element. I've talked about this thing maybe just twice in the podcast, but my last apartment, one of our guys died of an overdose. And he was on the higher, the same um, class that I was. Um, and I want to say it was like maybe a year, year and a half into us being there. And so I asked to be on the, the funeral detail. We took the ladder up, um, you know, put the American flag up, all that stuff. Stay there till after the family are gone. There was another department he worked for before. They sent just one guy, so we helped him break down everything. You know, went back, grabbed something to eat, and went back to the department. And we're driving back, and my cat, my lieutenant, gets a phone call, ordering him to apologize to all the other crews because we took too long at this funeral. And as you can imagine, I'm I'm a pretty mellow guy. We met. I'm not an angry person. I was so fucking disgusted and I went back to the station and they're all in the lazy boys then. Oh, you don't understand. It was so busy. And I, and I, I've, I've lost my shit twice in my life, once in Australia. Um, and then this time, and even then I was still able to restrain myself, but I was angry, bawling. I mean, I was just, my emotions were fucking gone. And I told him if I'm going to go, I'm going to pack my shit up and I'm going to leave now before I do something I'm going to fucking regret. But it was obviously morning, you know, the, with all the other shit thrown in. But I just buried one of our guys in a tragic, you know, end. His his wife was pregnant with his unborn child, and you're complaining about the fact that you had to run a couple extra calls while we went there and stood in our uniform alongside him. Mate, I was so fucking disgusted, and I was labeled a psycho for probably ever since. No one ever questioned the people like that were whining about running calls or we bury one of our guys, you know what I mean? So, and that's the thing is, oh, that's the angry guy. No. I mean, yes, at that time. And had it been a different day, I probably would have been disgusted but not lost my shit, but never attacked anyone, never threatened anyone. I was just so fucking disgusted with, as we've talked about, the fire service that I knew, the people that I've worked alongside in the previous departments versus this. I mean, I literally want to pull that badge off my chest and never fucking come back. And, you know, again, I was labeled the the psycho. Some people refused to work with me after that. And they just didn't fucking get it. So I can relate with, with, with the violence, with the anger. Because you've got all those things piled on. And then sometimes in stations, things happen that, you know, <laughs> just make you so angry. Um, yeah, so I, I can relate and I, I was labeled a, you know, a psycho myself by those particular people because they didn't understand why I was upset. They did yeah, not get the fuse it. Is, when the fuse is already lit and someone comes and pours a little bit of gasoline on it, naturally it's just going to speed it up, you know? Like, yeah. It's unfortunate. It is. All right. Well then totally, you know, transitioning now, uh, next closing question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? You know, I was actually going to 
recommend David Griffin, but since you told me he's already been on there. He has. He was amazing. Yeah, I'd have to I'd have to put some thought into that. I mean, I know a lot of different people. Um, Brilliant. If you ever come across Joe Coy in your comedy circuit, <laughs> you my wife, yeah, well, my wife's half Filipino. She's, I think he's awesome too. But yeah, I think he'd be a very different, um, very funny person to get on as well. Obviously, totally disconnected from this uh, community, but some of the guests are. Some of the guests are totally from left field. I've never worked with him. I have worked with a lot of a lot of very talented people, though. Um, not a name dropper, so I don't really. But I've worked with a lot of a lot of big names, and it's always a pleasure to get to work with someone like that because sometimes they'll surprise you and be like really, really phenomenal human beings, or the complete opposite, and they will be the biggest douchebags you've ever met in your <laughs> life. It is, it's kind of funny. Yeah, and that's the uh, thing. I've had some 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 names, if you like, on here, but they're only because they're they're good humans. So there's some more names that I'm going to try and get this year but it's nothing to do with the fame it's because i know that they do a lot of charity work some of which most people don't even know they do you know so steve buscemi's one i'd love to get on one day he he was on the pile ex fdny guy and you know only it's like an urban legend amongst our profession but no one else knows that he was out there doing that so those are the kind of you know people that happen to be famous but are just just good human beings well how about gary sinise he's here in charleston i believe i've never met him yeah, uh, I'd love to get him on. A ton of work yes. for, uh, for veterans. So that'd probably be a really cool dude to talk to. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I've got some people that kind of are two links in the chain away because um, I would love to get him. You know, I'd love to get um, Steve. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of people that are just so embedded in helping our communities. And, and those guys are, you know, I think I think Gary, Gary, in my opinion, and then John Stewart is another one. I think he really yeah, helped shift one. that 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 um new york cancer bill you know so yeah he'd, he'd be a great one i'll tell you who else would be good if you want to you want to hear some real stuff i'll put my wife on the phone here with you for about 10 minutes and she can give you all the dirt <laughs> 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 i don't want to do that <laughs> all right well we think about it <laughs> well i have my wife on here so yeah i mean you know i'm, oh, not, man. I'm not averse to that all right, so then the the last closing question, then we will make sure we find you know where everyone can find you. But what do you do aside from comedy to decompress these days? So I have I have a few different things. I've always been into fitness, and um, although I'm getting older, shit's getting much heavier. Um, same weight, just God, man, it's twice as heavy these days. Um, I go to the gym seven days a week, and it's not because I want to be the most muscular man in the world. It's because I try to start my day productive and I have to get the blood pumping and my body since naturally, since I was in the Marine Corps at 18 years old, I was programmed to go out and work out every day. Then I was a cop and a fireman and all that stuff. If I don't work out, I don't feel normal. And I know that sounds crazy, but if I don't get some level of exercise going, I just don't feel right. And, and I, I'm groggy the rest of the day, which doesn't help. Um, Another thing I like to do is I, I hike uh, and I, I like to explore. Even in my own area, there's no there's no mountains here, but if I can find swampy trails or just new places to go, like uh, take little adventures, I do that. Um, that's how I ended up in Francis Marion National Forest, about to blow my brains out. <laughs> I was just exploring, doing something that made me happy. Um, but one of the other big things is photography. So I got into wildlife photography. Um, maybe a year or so ago, and I went all in, man. I, I bought a big wildlife camera, a big wildlife lens, didn't know shit about photography. 
I was, I was just used to using an iPhone for everything. And then really started going out and working this camera. And I met some really cool people that are photographers and they kind of caught me up to speed on how to, how to do, do some good shots. And I've actually had some pretty decent, decent stuff. And, uh, but here lately I had to put the camera down, but this comedy's picked up so much. I literally come home, I'm washing clothes and seeing my kids for a little bit and I'm off to the next city, which case in point this week, I got to go to Birmingham, Alabama, Columbus, Georgia, and Nashville, you know, and in Columbia, South Carolina. So, I mean, I got a lot of stuff going on now, but I think that, yeah. So I think the trick this time is balance and I'm trying to figure out how to balance everything. And if you can get a nice balance in life, I think you're good to go. Yeah. Well, like we talked before as well with this, you know, this amazing online platform now, you know, where you can use YouTube and social media and some of these other um, programs for good. I, I think it, it allows us to be more, um, lean with our time and i mean here we are now we did the face-to-face for one part and now we're finishing with skype and you're sitting in your home and i'm sitting in my home so i think that efficiency piece maybe you know maybe allowing technology to put some of your stuff out there um maybe that would be a a great tool for your you know comedy 2.0 right and like i'm sure i don't know if your listeners know this but i drove seven hours down to see you the other day so we could do that first half just because i wanted to put a face with a name um and I'm glad I did. Yeah, and me too. So instead of driving back today, this is great. We can just do it this way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And as Murphy's Law, I mean, like you said, you had to drive back to your kids, and I had uh, Clint to interview, and we talked so much, you know. And, and again, just scratch the surface that first time. So I'm so glad that we were able right. to finish it this way. So make let's make sure that people know how to find you. So um, I know you're working on it at the moment. When the website is back up, what will that be? Uh, it'll be my name, Travis Howes, H-O-W-Z-E dot com or funnyunderfire.com. Either one will take you to it. Um, you can find me on social media, Facebook, um, Instagram, Travis, T-R-A-V-I-S, H-O-W-Z-E. I deleted Twitter. I'm not sure if I'm going back to that, um, but that's where, I, that's where you can find it. Um, and I hope that through my story, I hope this possibly reaches some someone and gives them a little bit of inspiration or hope that you know they too can pull themselves up. Uh, but it's it's up to you to do it. Nobody's going to do it for you. Well, mate, I I know that it will 100. percent And I just want to thank you. I mean, I, I say this at the end of a lot of these similar episodes, but you guys have to relive this to tell the story. Your mind's going back there, you know. And and I just appreciate the courage and the vulnerability it takes to go that. And then for you specifically, the ownership to say, I was that guy and, you know, I own that, but now I realize I was wrong and this is where I am now. Um, and you know, it is, it's stories like this that reach people. PowerPoint presentations do not fucking reach people. Here's how many firemen we lost last year. Here's how many lost the year before. Yeah, that's great, but that's not connecting with anyone. But I truly believe that stories like this, people like you telling their story, makes people realize that they're not alone and there is hope and there's you know there are ways to take a trauma and turn it into a strength you're right man powerpoint you can stick it up your ass and i'm sorry <laughs> the only way i know it is because i just got asked to do one and i won't say where but they said we want to we want a powerpoint presentation I, I stopped i said i'm not doing that i'm coming i'm speaking from the heart i don't lecture i should i'm not rehearsed i may say something different this time than i said last time but it's it revolves around the same thing. 
and then I'll take questions and I'm going to interact with people. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to sit here and point out statistics because when you leave here, you're not going to remember those, but you will remember what we talked about, you know, and that's how, that's how I see it. And that's how I approach it all the time. If you want a PowerPoint presentation, good, you need to find somebody else. I'm not going to do Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree hundred percent, especially with this topic. All right, mate. Well, again, thank you so, so much. Um, you know, I just, I'm so, you know, grateful that you not only took the time to, to be on the show, but to drive all that way to come down face to face. I wish we'd done that picture. So we'll do that next time. Um, but then to finish this up, I think, I think totally the two together now, we're looking at about three and a half hours. So that's a very, very generous amount of time. But I think that you're right. I think this is going to reach a lot of people. And I thank you. Well, the pleasure is all mine, certainly. And um, like I say, it's it's just owning it, man. And so hopefully, you know, people in similar situations, they can kind of own. It's, it's hard to do. But once you start owning it, you'll be a lot happier with yourself. And that's kind of just what I'm trying to do now. But thank you so much for having me on. And uh, we'll chat again soon.